Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, I am recording for Contrarian's Corner for Halloween 2018, also known as Halloween, the Danny McBride edition. Or Halloween Returns at one point, Halloween 3D. I think there was the idea of just calling it Halloween 2 again, even not Halloween 2 again, but Halloween 2 as well. Um, I wish it was Halloween 2 again. (laughs) And it would have started with Laurie and Michael saying together again, again. (laughs) I think this is a joke at one point, just because it's fucking Danny McBride and David Gordon Green. But there was at one point a rumor it was going to be called H4O. And <laughs> I I can't in good faith believe that's uh, accurate. Oh, God. But How about at the, the end of the day, Halloween? That should have I was just I was just about to say you beat me to it. It was um, <laughs> the joke we've made time and time again. From all my research, it sounded like they just thought, well, fuck it. We'll just call it Halloween. The goal was they didn't want to alienate anyone or make anyone think that they had to have any knowledge coming into it, which obviously paid off in spades because this movie made well over $200 million. But yes, the contrarians, myself and Julio, are here to bring finality to Haddonfield Nights. Our six-part Halloween series spanning the months of September and October. And again, what we've referred to as the spookiest year of 2020. If you are listening to this the day of release, a happy Halloween to you wherever you are in the world. And thank you for tuning in. Uh, if you're an American listening to this, uh, happy Halloween to you as well. And you know that we are just three days away from what is going to be one of the most uh, stressful and um, taxing days that I will live through in my lifetime. So I'm glad that before we get there, we can bring uh, a close to this extremely enjoyable uh, saga that's the contrarians uh, we we have done uh, over the past two months and also uh, potentially bring a little levity to y'all by watching a crazy large white man murdering a bunch of innocent people. Wait, so I thought election day was the fifth. It's the third, baby. Is it? Well, it's a good thing I'm voting early because I would have missed it. (laughs) You're fucking Jerry Gergich, man. Like you came in. Wait, is today the day I'm supposed to vote? Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm voting early also, but I I took off. uh, I put in my request today for work. I put in a PTO for the fourth. And oh fuck, I I should do that. I told my manager I'm going to need the day off one way or another because I already know I'm going to be extremely hungover one way or the other. So it's. It's uh, it's a necessary evil. Here nor there, I'm sure we'll have plenty of lamenting to do when that time comes, if the worst happens, and we'll have plenty of celebrating to do if what we are hoping for the sake of our future and our country happens. 
Never a dull moment in America. Uh, Dull, yeah, is not the right word. It's been a while since we had a proud moment. Uh, And (laughs) speaking of, uh, you know, colloquialisms and uh, local pride, the town of Haddonfield, Illinois, had been safe for 40 years. There was a, a sense of calm that swelled over them, and they were able to get back to their normal lives. Haddonfield, Illinois, had once again become a Pleasantville-type environment. Uh, that was until it was Halloween in the year 2018 when their worst fears came back to life once again. Welcome to the Contrarians, and welcome to the finale of Haddonfield Nights. My name is Alex. I am joined, as always, in every episode in this journey down the path of the contrary by my co-host, Julio. Julio, we have arrived. How are you doing on this fateful Tuesday evening? We made it. We made it. We both survived. We're still alive. The coronavirus didn't take us down. Michael Myers didn't take us down. We're unstoppable. This is my second time watching this movie. I have a lot more to say about it than I did the first time, I think. I blame Haddonfield Knights for that. Because my my knowledge of the Halloween franchise has expanded in a way that watching this uh, 2018 edition of the Michael Myers story uh, just... It awakened new things in me that were not there before. I still don't think that it hits me the way that it hits you. Because as we've established in every episode uh, since September started, uh, you are you are the Halloween fan here. You're mm-hmm. you're the man that loves the franchise, warts and all. And I just I've slowly admire the franchise from afar. My hope is that when we get to the because obviously being the final episode, we're going to do a little bit of a recap and kind of discuss what we've uh, what have we learned, Palmer, and um, our favorites from doing this. I honestly hope when this concludes, you're going to explain to me that Halloween 3 is the best one and all the rest of them are just okay. We'll we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Oh, I, 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 I don't want to spoil it, so I'm, I'll just bite my tongue. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, I already have been fucking with the timeline so much because I talked about, hey, you're listening to this on Halloween Day, and then three days from now is the presidential election. And then I said it was a Tuesday evening. And so <laughs> I, I was going to get mad at myself for already, you know, less than 10 minutes into this podcast, just fucking with listeners' minds about what the timeline is. But to be fair, the Halloween franchise has no real, you know, care for fucking with viewers' minds. So why should we? Yeah, no, uh, this, we'll, is, this is a... Uh... DC's Crisis on Infinite Earths or uh, Zero Hour or whatever, any of those big cosmic events that just reset everything. They just get rid of all the stuff they don't like. And uh, who cares if there are people that like those things? We did a pretty good job of piecing this together. Like I said, from the get-go, the phrase I used was the canonical chronology and starting with the Rob Zombie Halloween and bringing this up to our finale right here. We have pieced these all together sequentially, and it, we had the bonus episode of Halloween 3, which is just kind of removed from it all, but we covered the 2007 remake, the original, part 6, and then H2O, and then bringing us to here. So, while the uh, you know canon is, is a bit different, I think we did a pretty good job. We, we, we hit all of the, the notes, the highs and the lows in this franchise. I think we did... I think we did the, the Halloween franchise pretty good here. What I like, what I find interesting of this this little set of Halloween movies that we decided to explore is that we, we hit the outliers in a way because uh, things like uh, Halloween 3, uh, like uh, Curse of Michael Myers, like H2O. I mean, I'll be the first to accuse the franchise of repeating itself because it does. 
it's just it's a slasher movie in the end it's just it's always halloween whatever number it is it's always a slasher movie but there are times in the franchise where it just went a little more out there than they normally did right and i think that those three three six and h2o they they try to do a little something a little different uh, regardless of whether they succeeded or not they were just pushing you know trying to go somewhere so it felt appropriate to just kind of sandwich all those between the original halloween and the most recent halloween which are more traditional in a way um mm-hmm. so good job because that's all you <laughs> I had nothing to do with the, with the scheduling of these episodes. So if this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, which, as I've said, for every stop in Haddonfield Nights, it's very possible because these are a, a franchise. The Halloween franchise is one of very impassioned fans, uh, passionate fans, and very um, emboldened, in their opinion, uh, fans. So if this is your first time stumbling upon our podcast, thank you so much. Hope you'll make it till the end here so we can have a bit of fun, a bit of banter, and then also discuss uh, some real thoughts on the film. If you're a returning listener, uh, please uh, grant us a little bit of time as we explain what we do here to any and all potential new listeners. So myself and Julio here on The Contrarians like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, as we say. Uh, find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, typically about 90% and above is where we shoot. Uh, those movies that are often known as certified fresh, and then maybe talk about why those movies should be taken down a few pegs. Uh, Conversely, find a movie we usually aim for about 30% and below, movies known as rotten, make a case for their positive merit and why maybe they got a a, a raw deal, a bad hand dealt. Um, This is a little bit different, as we've kind of done with uh, several installments in Haddonfield Nights. Uh, This movie is at 79% on Rotten Tomatoes, which doesn't quite fall into, you know, our... Uh, we aim for those upper tier, um, but as we've done so far, it's definitely on one side of the spectrum. So we're going to be treating this as a certified fresh movie, so to speak. So in the first portion of the podcast, known as Contrarian's Corner, we'll be making a case for uh, maybe why this movie uh, isn't as good as a lot of people think. With that in mind, for all of our actual opinions and also just kind of tying this in to our overall thoughts on the franchise, Julio, where does that get done? That gets done the second half of the podcast, aptly titled Real Talk. That's where we talk really. That's where you'll find out how we how we really feel. Uh, sometimes it matches what we said in Contrarian's Corner. Sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it's somewhere in between. And usually we try to keep our true opinions uh, somewhat from uh, each other. So... While I may have an idea of how Alex feels about Halloween 2018, and he may have an idea of how I feel about the movie, uh, we don't know for sure, usually, until we start hashing it out uh, during Real Talk. And you guys get to listen to it, which is the best part. The creative minds that brought us the likes of Pineapple Express, Eastbound and Down, uh, what was that one they did with Natalie Portman that didn't Your Highness. Well? <laughs> Your Highness. Academy Award winner Natalie Portman. Thank you. Uh, that would have been after she won also. My God. <laughs> anyway, here nor there. The creative minds that brought you such gems are here to also bring the final and most recent installment in the Halloween franchise. But again, 79%. It's up there. And I remember specifically the critics were pretty gaga about this. Julio, what were they saying? Yeah, I kind of get the feeling that at some point its tomato meter score was higher. And then I think over time it's maybe lowered. But uh, I got a, a few quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website, all fresh. 
you want to listen to the rotten quotes, stick around for real talk. Uh, but let's start with Cameron Frew from Movie Corner, who says the apex slasher of the decade, electric, ultraviolent, and thematically resonant with today. I'm just gonna kick of anybody using the word apex because I think of uh, Chronicle and the apex predator. Uh, <laughs> apex slasher <laughs> of the decade, even the apex predator, and for any and all pro wrestling fans, is Randy Orton. That's one of his nicknames, so that's immediately what I thought uh, of. Well, so. see, it works F- on so trade. many levels. Damian Levy from Jamaica Gleaner says Michael may be a killer of few words, but the film has so much to say. And I would say that Michael is a killer of no words at all. Um, yeah, he that that doesn't make any sense. He's. Sp- <laughs> He spoke in one of the movies, and that timeline has been completely eradicated by this movie. So, <laughs> Stephen Rommel from The Australian says, Now, with the 11th movie in the franchise, we have something a little daring. That's a little harsh on the previous nine sequels. I think that they were going to say, daring. Halloween 4 would like a moment for rebuttal, <laughs> sir. Uh And finally, Amanda Griever from The Daily Times, Tennessee, says, Halloween might be a so-so horror movie, or it might be amazing. I honestly don't care. It's a film about a strong woman standing up and doing what it takes to protect her family. On that mark, it hits every note. Well, Amanda. Um. (laughs) I I think a running joke during Contrarian's Corner is going to be about how this movie hates men more than Juno. But uh, I would more say that it kind of, that kind of glosses over the fact that her child was taken away from her at 12 years old due to neglective parenting. <laughs> but that you pays know. off, Alex. It was worth it. It saved oh, her it, life. It, it absolutely does. And one of the Oscar clips of the film, it definitely pays off. So as we've been accustomed to in Haddonfield Nights, we're kicking it back to Smith's Grove. This movie begins on October 29th of 2018. Uh, as this movie was released shortly before that. So this movie actually took place in the future. Very daring and cunning (laughs) ambition from David Gordon Green and uh, Danny McBride. Not unlike the creators of Jason X. Very cunning (laughs) and daring ambition. Uh, I guess that explains the the setup of Smith's Grove, which is pretty futuristic. Smith's Grove, like we haven't seen it before. Where uh, they've gotten rid of of rooms. (laughs) Dude, I was going to say, it's not just Smith's Grove. Haddonfield in this timeline has become this burgeoning fucking metropolitan area. (laughs) Like, it's they have an Applebee's and they have this state of the art mental facility. Their high school is like one of those big schools you would see on them. Uh, for anyone that went to college in my same time frame between 2005 and 2010, there was a show called Two a Days on MTV that was like a big high school show, <laughs> and that's that's the kind of setup they have here. So Haddonfield is no longer, you know, the uh, Halloween one through, I guess five when they, you know, they just have the one drugstore <laughs> and uh, the one gas station with the Cookie Woman that all the cops know about. So it's it's definitely definitely a different Haddonfield that we've established here, and to make you certain of what year you're in, and you know watching this now, it's not that, and obviously the irony of us trying to make a joke oh, about yeah. podcasters, but <laughs> twenty, thirty, forty years from now, whenever this movie's viewed, they'll be like, oh, of course they had podcasters in this movie. Yeah, it's uh, uh it's what I I've come to ever since our 
boyhood episodes, what I would call a Richard Linklater moment, where it just really hammers at home, like where you are in the world, in, in the in the time stream. So, of course, uh, with the most obvious reference here, it yeah, it has to be uh, two British podcasters doing their version of, I don't know, Serial. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, just digging deep. I don't know. It, it's just so obvious. It, it's I wish that they had been just regular journalists. The, it really adds nothing <laughs> to the story that they're podcasters. <laughs> it's just so they can use the word podcast. And they're also British, so you have to wonder the whole international incident that this caused. The fact that these <laughs> these uh, European journalists came over to get an interview, and then they were murdered by some crazy white American. But they show up, and they meet the doctor. What is this guy's name? Not Loomis. Uh, doctor. Not Yeah, I have many times in my notes, not Loomis. Uh, Haluk Biljiner. Sorry, I know I mispronounced your name, sir. I apologize. Uh, who plays Dr. Ranbir uh, Sartain, who is Michael's psychiatrist and right from the get-go establishes that he was a, a protege, a student of Dr. Loomis up until um, Loomis left us. Yeah, he is and- so uh, he's so eager to prove to us, the audience, that he is a worthy successor. He can't wait to <laughs> throw his credentials uh, at the screen and go like, listen, I I I learned from Loomis. I was his protege, and uh, and I am I'm taking this this Michael Myers case as seriously, if not more seriously than he did, because he was convinced that this was a, a dead end, and I still want to understand what's what's going on inside that mind. He's trying to he he's he's pandering to me, Alex. The past five episodes, that's been my thing. I, I've been all about what makes Michael Myers stick. Even, you know, Curse of Michael Myers kind of slapped me in the face for, for asking that question. <laughs> and and now this guy is is trying to uh to get me excited again, trying to to just get me enthusiastic, get me behind his character because he's somebody, the one person that really wants to know what's what's going on. The podcasters, they're just there's they're in it for for a show. They you know, they're just trying to to make a an spectacle. Like that guy, the British guy, when he pulls Michael's mask and shows it to Michael, I mean that's just that's just uh, theatrics. That's no real uh, thirst for knowledge. Uh, but this doctor, he's trying to to convince us that he's the real deal. And sadly, nothing on the actor. But in the end, he's not Loomis. So uh, no. that's a misstep. Why would you shoot yourself in the foot trying to create a character that would sort of replace Loomis? It's it's impossible. Can't be done. I was gonna say also, yeah. The, these journalists just come up to Michael. I guess it's you know recess or something. They have all the. The uh, the loony bin is all out outside and soaking up the rays, and we see Michael. Uh, we do get the one over the shoulder shot where you can see his eyes still fucked up from that um, coat hanger, which was pretty cool. Aaron, I believe the male journalist's name is, says my I got something from my friend at the attorney general's office. He pulls out the mask, which is like a massive case of evidence in a serious murder uh, trial or you know crime. That's something that should be preserved in legal archives for eternity and he's just like oh here it is it's in my bag with my kombucha and my fucking tobacco and rolling papers uh yeah and and, you know it's not even a surprise because the the doctor he's hanging back but he gives him a nod like yeah go ahead do it so he knew (laughs) everybody was in on it he does have that awesome nod like me at a bar when 
I'm trying to keep an eye on people and someone looks to me to see if they've had enough to drink or if they're okay to take another shot. <laughs> I just give that like my hand out kind of my hand is reaching out and touching yours and nodding along with it. <laughs> and this of course leads itself to him moderately reacting to it. And what becomes the theme of the movie is Aaron, the podcaster, the quote unquote journalist, you know, say something, say something cuts to the opening credits, which establish this entire movie is going to be, a giant homage to the franchise, but specifically the original one, because uh, I assume you caught this because it's been in such close proximity that you've watched the original Julio. Mm -hmm. The opening credits of the original are a jack-o'-lantern falling apart. This is a jack-o'-lantern regenerating. Uh, it's an inflatable jack-o'-lantern. That's what I put on my notes. It looks like it's being is... inflated, so it can be outside of a convenience store or a gas station, just kind of waving at people. That is incorrect, actually. It was not a CG or, you know, artificial prop at all. They actually did this with uh, elapsing photography. I, I read that and I was so happy because, <laughs> as you know, and all listeners of our podcast know, I am fully in favor of practical effects. But that's how we you get know. the same thing. That's font. how you know they're good. When the practical effects <laughs> make you think that it's CGI, that's when they've just really <laughs> reached top level. We get the same font with the neon orange glow. Uh, the torch being passed along to Miss uh, Andy uh, Matichuk, who plays Allison as she gets the introducing credit, mm -hmm. uh, much like her grandmother in the movie, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, got 40 years prior. Paul Rudd. So, Paul Rudd, Paul Stephen Rudd, <laughs> yeah. excuse you. This opening credit scene leads to, you got to get to the end of the Yang. These uh, podcasters pull up at Laurie Strode's residence in Haddonfield, which is out on the outskirts of town, uh, where I imagine there's not much legal jurisdiction. She has a property that all that was missing in this was a Trump flag flying. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> the blue, I think he has a, a blue one that says Trump for America, stop the bullshit. That's the one that should be flying out in front of Laurie Strode's house in this particular incarnation. But, I mean, she's got cameras everywhere, uh, fence system with the um, fucking call box. You have to call to get in. I imagine she doesn't have much Uber uh, or uh, Uber Eats, I should say, or uh, favor is the phrase I was looking for there. Many delivery services out there. But they come up and ask if they can interview her. She kind of tells them to fuck off, and then they tell her they'll pay, they'll pay $3,000. And I like this guy, this fucking nerd. Like, real journalists don't pay for interviews. It's like, motherfucker, you're a podcaster. <laughs> but but then that also, what podcaster is spending $3,000 on on an interview with, with Lori Strode? I mean... Even if they were like the biggest fans ever of uh, Laurie Strode and the Halloween franchise, three thousand is a lot of money. <laughs> so I, I don't know. The the pound was particularly strong to the dollar back in 2018. Oh, there you go. There's a famous story in the boxing world back in 2007 when a British boxer by the name of Ricky Hatton fought Floyd Mayweather, and the pound was very very strong to the dollar at the time i can't remember the particular reason for it but it essentially led to just this deluge this cacophony of brits flying over because they were able to get fucking plane tickets for pennies on the dollar so i i imagine it's a very similar situation here in 2018 that these two uh, journalists 
podcasters were like, holy shit, we can go to this shitty town in <laughs> Illinois for five bucks. Let's do it. That's that's why they had to be British. <laughs> exactly. It all makes sense now. <laughs> uh, speaking of deluge and just a, a complete mudslide, you got to keep up quick because the next five minutes of the movie introduce you to pretty much the cast for the, the remainder of the 2018 Halloween as we are introduced to the, I mean, we see the whiz first of all. <laughs> for any and all of my Seinfeld uh, natives out there. Uh, Toby Huss, who plays Ray Nelson, who is the husband to Karen, played by Judy Greer. Uh, Of course, in this particular case, Karen is Laurie Strode's daughter. This isn't Judy Greer's first time on The Contrarians, is it? Uh, No, no. I'm pretty sure we've... uh... (sighs) Well, obviously Elizabeth Town, where she plays uh, Orlando Bloom's sister. Mm -hmm. I want to say she was she also gets... in uh, Three Kings, maybe. But I know she's just, we, we mentioned her constantly because it's Judy Greer. She's an institution, mm-hmm. uh, which, of course, when I saw that this guy had somehow managed to marry her, I was just, <laughs> I thought that was going to be a bigger revelation down the road. It was like, how did this happen? Uh, but no, there's it's... really nothing. I mean, I guess he, he's just, he's just, he likes that he makes her laugh. I don't know. What's your what's your theory here, Alex? How did the Wiz uh, manage to uh, not not just marry uh, Judy Greer, but have a daughter with her? First of all, to go back to your point, yes, I I knew she had had some iconic moment on our podcast, and it's her in Elizabeth Town under the sprinkler system when the fire alarm goes off in the community rec center. Yes. So first of all, <laughs> that answered that question. Secondly, I mean Toby Huss, uh, he's a, he's a fine looking man. I mean he definitely is. He looks at least 30 years older than her, but you know, that's <laughs> sometimes you just got to roll with those punches. Well, but but, he, but it's also he's our introduction to his character is him trying to set up mousetraps and and it takes like maybe a minute before he fucks something up and he hits his his finger and then he gets uh, peanut butter all over his crotch. <laughs> it's just come on, not impressive at all. Not what I would expect uh not just Judy Greer, but the daughter of uh of Laurie Strode, that's not what I would think she would be looking for in a mate. Dude, and uh, watching it this time specifically, what like seeing him fumble through setting up these mouse traps, I thought to myself, how did I not realize he was going to be killed with relative ease in this movie? <laughs> Just seeing him have all these issues trying to put peanut butter on a mouse trap. Of course, Michael Myers is going to kill him with virtually no problem. <laughs> uh, you know, spoiler alert, but there it is. Whatever the case, Ray Nelson, husband to Karen, and their daughter, Allison, uh, is the aforementioned Andy Matichek, who is the granddaughter to Laurie Strode and a very uh, scholastically advanced student, very high achieving student. There's some award or something, some competition that she's uh, entered into that's on the line. I, I can't remember exactly what it is. They kind of shy away from it, but... The idea is she's very smart and is going to have a very successful life following high school. She gets a ribbon. That is it. She gets a. It's not a sash, is it? It's kind of like a soccer scarf that just kind of drapes over both shoulders. That's what it looked like. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. They probably that's one of the deleted scenes, the one where they explain what the hell, uh, what's the deal? <laughs> Why is everybody so excited about her academic prowess? So we then meet her boyfriend, Cameron. What a white guy name played it as if Cameron wasn't white enough. The dude's name is Dylan Arnold. That is the <laughs> whitest name I have ever heard this side of Conor McGregor. And then we have 
um, shit. Who was not Jonah Hill? What was <laughs> who was that guy? Uh, see, was it Oscar? Yes, that's Oscar. I thought he okay. looked like a, like a young Josh Gad. It's been a while since I've thrown a Josh Gad reference. I was about to say the. I think this is the first Gad reference in the entire Haddonfield Knights uh, saga. I'm glad we so threw that one in. I'm proud of you for being so restrained and also saving it for such a Weasley character. <laughs> Do you? Are you telling me that you think that Oscar is more Weasley than Cameron? Oh no, Cameron's just like a little bitch. Uh, <laughs> Oscar, as we'll find out a little bit later, has. He's smart enough to know when to capitalize, and but he knows what his true intentions are. I mean, to be fair, they're in high school. Shit's a lot different than high school is not real life. So Cameron, you know, <laughs> just being a really hot white dude exploring his options isn't particularly wrong, especially for a city like Haddonfield. I think he's pretty much living up to what his expectations are. And did you catch who his father is? Cameron's father? Yes. Do we even see him? Okay. Well, we don't, but we find out who his father is. So it's not like fucking Tom Selleck plays his dad or something. <laughs> okay. They mentioned several times who his father is. And in terms of Halloween canon, it's it's a big one. Uh, I No, I didn't. I, who is he? So they mentioned several times, and specifically Toby Huss uh, talks about his dad, Lonnie. Lonnie Ellum. He's like, oh, he's an idiot. Lonnie Ellum is Cameron's dad, but Lonnie Ellum is, he was Tommy Doyle's friend and the original, and he's also, Lonnie, get your ass away from there. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Wow. Loomis would be so proud that that Lonnie survived long enough to have a kid. Douchebag kid that Donald Pleasant would probably tell to hit the fucking bricks, too. (laughs) So we see the teens, we meet the adults, we understand the cast of characters we're dealing with, and we get a, a shot of Laurie Strode back at her place, knowing that we're dealing with a new Laurie Strode. She's shooting a bunch of fucking mannequins. And then we get the shot of her in the uh, green wife beater tank top. Like, is this supposed to be Sarah Connor? I mean, this is... It's trying um, so hard. We covered not too long ago, what was the really shitty one that came out most recently? Dark Fate? Yes. The There's... Literally a sequence of shots in that movie, just like this, with Jamie Lee Curtis with the 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 tank top, loading guns, cleaning guns. It was, it was reaching. It's it, but it's trying so hard to do what H two O did a lot more uh, successfully. It, it, with H two O, it's almost effortless, right? When we met uh, Laurie Strode in H two O, you could tell that there was that trauma just weighing on her. But we didn't need to see her turn into just this this really ultra violent, uh, jaded character to to understand it. We saw instead a, a woman that was trying to kind of cling to normality, and and the the trauma was just kind of inside, and every now and then it would break out. Right? That was that's a lot more interesting because it's more subtle and it's more like real life, as opposed to seeing a Laurie Strode that's just suddenly. Uh, an action superstar that has a whole arsenal in her home has a bat cave. It's so over the top. That's and that's the the tone of the entire movie. It's just so overwrought. Uh, and I guess they kind of had to do it because, uh, like I said, H two O already got there and did it the subtle way. So the only way that they could go if they were going to try to explore how uh, the how the events of Halloween have affected Laurie Strode is to just push it even further. Uh, Unfortunately, it's it's a lot less interesting. I mean, I know there's an audience for it. I think that there are people that were just dying to see Laurie Strode 
just, you know, pumping a shotgun and just being a, another Sarah Connor uh, or another Ripley even. But that that's not, I mean, to me, that kind of uh, transforms the character of Laurie Strode too much. It just takes her too far from what she originally was. So Laurie goes to see the transport of Michael Myers. He's going to be taken to a maximum security facility in Colorado. He will be gone out of her life forever. And she's watching this, basically him be transported into this bus. She's behind the wheel of her car. She's got a gun ready to go if necessary. Let's out a really primal scream. We go back to the celebratory dinner at the Haddonfield Applebee's <laughs> as you know the, the latest scholastic achievement of Allison is being on full display. This is also where her parents meet Cameron for the first time. She asks, and I have this in quotations of, did you ask grandmother to come? And that is absolutely such a touch of an over-entitled like little young person thinking they need to say grandmother. I don't know why it rubbed me the wrong way, but I've met enough young people that think they understand how the world works to realize how pretentious they want to be by saying something like that. So it definitely made me laugh. Yeah. And on one end, I was going to try to defend it and say, well, uh, Laurie Strode, the way that Jamie Lee Curtis is playing her now, doesn't strike me as, as the kind of uh, grandma that would go for grandma or granny or nana or anything but if nothing i think that she would just ask to be called lori so she should have said did you ask lori to come she does show up and she's obviously a frazzled mess and just leads to uh dramatic fall apart between the family at you know I, to be fair, I keep saying Applebee's. It could be a TGI Fridays. Didn't particularly look like a Chili's. The architecture wasn't as such. Bennigan's, but it maybe? was definitely. Uh, I think Bennigan's was out of the game in 2018. <laughs> so, this is this is a different timeline though. This is a timeline where Haddonfield is is a booming uh, metropolis. <laughs> so maybe they managed to rescue the last Bennigan's on Earth. It was in the Midwest, so it could have been a Max and Irma's for all of my <laughs> Midwesterners out there. And it leads basically nowhere well. And we get the flashback and kind of the exposition of Judy Greer explaining her childhood and you know being trained to fight, being trained to shoot guns, and being taken away from Laurie Strode at 12 years old for basically inclement conditions. <laughs> For learning how to fight. So it is, you can't teach your daughter to defend herself against uh, serial killers. That's not America. No wonder Laurie Strode is voting for Trump. Wouldn't you know it, the bus crashes that <laughs> Michael Myers is on and unleashes himself and a whole slew of inmates onto the freeway or not even a freeway, it's like a backcountry road. And still, every time I see this scene, it's the most shocking because it's a, a dad and his son that pull up that find the scene after an evening of hunting. And the dad gets out to investigate. And, of course, immediately you pretty much understand that his fate has been met. And then the kid gets out. The kid calls the cops and is like, hey, there's been an accident. He gets out to go find his dad. He, in the process, accidentally shoots the not Loomis. Which is awesome. Dr. Uh, <laughs> Sartan. Yeah, because he goes, don't shoot. And the kid shoots him. He's like, oh, shit. <laughs> So he runs back to the car. But again, this is like dark shit. We've talked about the implication in the past of Michael killing dogs and the idea of him, you know, obviously four and five. The whole idea of it is he's trying to kill Jamie Lloyd, this little girl. And with Halloween six, the idea of him maybe trying to sacrifice a baby. It never actually happens because the filmmakers have enough fucking decency (laughs) to spare us that. We watch Michael strangle and 
bludgeon and beat this kid's head against the side of the car and then he breaks his neck. It's horrifying. Yeah, it's it's too much. And at the same time, it's like, well, we kind of were already there after Season of the Witch. Season of the Witch made uh, a kid's head melt and turn into reptiles. But again, we already established uh, Cochran was a far more evil gentleman than Michael Myers. Yeah, that's why that's why it works. It's it's just all in the way that you shoot it, in the way that you set it up. We did not need to see this happen. If if David Gordon Green had had the taste to look away. It's like, all right, you're going to kill the kid so that we see that, that Michael Myers means business? Okay, well, you don't have to, like, leave the camera rolling while it happens. It's like, we get it. You know, there's enough is enough. The, 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 you have to show some sort of a, a restraint uh, sometimes. You know, you, have to go, you don't have to go all out. But then again, this is that's how the movie operates. Uh, Halloween 2018 is all about that shot of Laurie Strode just... Uh, her primal scream, right? Her howling because she can't bring herself to, to, I don't know, break into the the hospital and kill Michael earlier. Uh, that's the, that's the pitch of the entire movie. So of course we're not gonna look away from child murder. We're just gonna see it there in, in a in a close up. It's just, uh, yeah, it, it's it's too much. Uh, like like so many things in this movie is too much. Now going back a little bit to the beginning of the scene. This is maybe the first time that I felt Danny McBride uh, behind the the word processor, just like writing and saying. And here they riff about the kid wanting to dance instead of wanting to go hunting or something. <laughs> they, they have like two or three minutes of banter, just the dad and the kid, where the dad's like, well, don't you want to go hunt with me? And the kid goes on and on about how he... He's missing dance practice and that it really hits him in the heart when he misses it. Now, it's a lot of just inconsequential bullshit that feels like when Danny McBride just starts riffing in one of his comedies. It's not good. <laughs> it's, I mean, if you were attracted to this movie because you heard that Danny McBride was one of the writers, then, well, this is for you. That that sequence and a few others that are to come uh that's probably what you were hoping for, but for me it just didn't work. It kind of it just felt so uh mannered compared to most of the movie. It's fair. He had to get his spots in where he could. Uh, he had to, you know, perk up and say, oh, wait, wait, this is a moment where I get to write the dialogue? All right. <laughs> Insert that gif of Kermit just going to town on the fucking typewriter. What this all leads itself to is us being introduced to the sheriff bracket for a new era, which is played by Will Patton, very accomplished, very polished actor. Mm-hmm. I, every time I watch this movie, I, I'm always kind of re surprised to see him. Well, the way I'm that like, they, oh, shit. the way that they show him, it's it's pretty. He gets a major reveal, like visually, uh, right? Because yeah. he's playing the pinball uh, machine, and we're just seeing him his, his back, and then the camera pulls back as he turns, and it's all I was missing was uh, actor Will Patton. <laughs> So to be fair, I say Sheriff Brackett. He is not the sheriff in this movie. He is Deputy Frank Hawkins, and he was someone who reported the scene initially 40 years ago, so he has a very close uh, tie to it. For the movie, yes, he is the Sheriff Brackett character. He's the, right. the law enforcement figure we're most closely associated with. The sheriff of Haddonfield is actually played by Omar Dorsey. Uh, the man in black. My God, I didn't even make the comparison or the tie there. That's insane. I, I remember thinking about it the first time because the first time I watched this, we already watched five. Uh, and now having watched six, it's like, yeah. <laughs> How else do you explain that aesthetic? It, it He looks like nobody else in that movie uh, with the hat and the, just everything. He's even black as if you, you know, because the movie has to hit you over the head with it. 
no subtlety. Yes, he is one of one of the four African Americans that inhabit Haddonfield, Illinois. Uh, as we've seen during this entire journey, it's quite with the capital W, the the city. And I assume he. I don't assume you know what happens when we do that, but I would venture to guess. He may have gotten this role from his work with both uh, David Gordon Green and uh, Kenny Powers from Eastbound and Down. Uh, he had a reoccurring role in the final season of that show where he was very funny. And for me personally, just the way the movie hit me when it first came out, he will always be, uh, I believe his character's name is Lawrence in Road Trip. He's the guy that pranks DJ Qualls and makes him think he's going to kill him and that shit's really funny, man, when you're 14 years old. I don't remember. So, yeah. I remember Tom Green. That's all I remember. That's Tom Green's best role. I don't know why we haven't done that movie yet, here nor there, <laughs> but that is that is the best use of energy anyone ever got from Tom Green was in that movie. <laughs> that is what Todd Phillips should have been nominated for an Academy Award for, was <laughs> that instead of fucking Joker. <laughs> Years before that movie came in and soiled the good name of the Oscars, back in Haddonfield, we had Will Patton as Deputy Frank Hawkins. Again, just to recap, was there originally 40 years ago. He could have made sure that Michael Myers was killed. He was the one that stopped Loomis from finishing the job, and he's held it against himself. So he knows what he has to do in this particular situation. We get the title screen of October 31st, which I completely forgot that there's a smash cut to a black screen, and then the white font fades in that says October 31st, and it leads to a grave visit for the investigative journalists. The podcasts go... And uh, they visit Judith Meyer's grave, and this fucking pretentious windbag is just, you know, the the <laughs> grounds person there. This woman is trying to explain to him, yeah, this is where it's at. And this asshole just cuts her off. He's like, oh, I know. Stabbed a million times. Severed her, her spinal column. Sounds like a real fucking asshole. Well, the, and and they're recording, right? At some point, they pull out their... Their recorders, and they start recording. Their- and she and she looks at him like, "What the fuck are these people doing?" Yeah, because it's not like they're not interviewing anybody. You you don't need to do this. It's it's the same as pulling the mask in front of Michael. I mean, it's just theatrics. The 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 shit that he's saying, that stuff that you would record in a studio for for sound quality. You don't need to record it in a graveyard that's probably windy and uh, the 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 sound quality is not gonna be uh, good, but. You know they have to go for the melodramatic, like everything else in this movie. It, it that's how you know that Danny McBride, David Gordon Green, they really don't know anything about podcasting. They just they just thought that well, you know, it, it's just a magic word, and and it, it can justify them being uh, indie journalists. It's not exactly the same thing, man. So here is where this becomes everyone's fault, but Michael. Michael is not hunting these people. They present themselves to him. Michael just went to hang out by his sister's gravestone, and then he sees these ignorant British journalists show up and is like, wait a minute. I forgot about that dude, but that motherfucker has my mask. So I'm going to go follow him now and get my mask back. If these people had just gone home, they wouldn't have ended up dead. And that's the whole thing we'll get into with Lori. He's not hunting her. <laughs> She just happens to get in his way. So really, Michael is the victim here. <laughs> he just wanted to kill in peace. He did not have a vendetta. 
he was just, you know, if you happen to cross him, he'll kill you. But you could stay out of his way and be okay. And kill he does as he follows the journalist. I mean, we get two packed homages here to the the, the, the previous uh, films. One, Michael driving, which I know, Julio, you were just gaga about. And uh, secondly, do you understand the homage here of where he actually finds the the journalist and what unfolds? Did you get which movie this was paying tribute to? Well, it's it's a it's a two punch because on one end it's uh is it H two O yeah it's H two O right the one that has like the mom and the daughter and uh, he doesn't kill them but mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. he walks in but it's also Joe Grizzly in uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween. It, this franchise cannot stay away from bathrooms, <laughs> from from. <laughs> public restrooms around convenience stores or gas stations. Uh, so, unfortunately, neither of these journalists, these British podcasters, can put up a fight the way Joe Grizzly did, and neither of them is as lucky as that that woman and her daughter. So, uh, they get well, killed. And also, though it wasn't covered on Haddonfield Nights, but it had been previously covered, this is uh, a direct homage to Halloween 4, where he kills the uh, mechanic and steals his jumpsuit. Oh right, because you see it. Uh, what's the name? Aaron, the male podcaster. He finds the the mechanic killed. Of it, it doesn't have the awesome shot of uh, four where Michael's got his head bandaged up and it looks like a massive Q-tip, and he just <laughs> has like a big rod. And he's like, hmm. But we get that, and it's Michael. The killing starts unfolding. He knocks a dude's teeth out. Yeah, both of these journalists are just no fucking match. Joe Grizzly, LL Cool J, Josh Hartnett. They are not. Uh, I'm trying to think of anyone else we've covered that's put up a significant Michelle fight. Williams. Paul Rudd. Michelle Williams got Michelle a couple of Michelle Williams. <laughs> Paul Rudd. Uh, Marianne Hagen. <laughs> Donald Pleasance. They have nothing on them. Uh, so they're taken out, and this leads to uh, our Deputy Frank Hawkins as well as uh, Sheriff Barker realizing the severity of the situation and, well, maybe we should take this a bit more seriously. The main significance of the scene is that Michael gets his mask back. This shit is in broad daylight at a fucking 7-Eleven. <laughs> Does no one see what's going on? He just takes it out of the trunk and puts it over his head. I think the car is still at the gas pump. It's not like he drove down the road a little ways and pulled over to do his ceremony. Well, it's to be ridiculous. Fair. He he already killed, I think, everybody else that was at the gas station. Touche. And, and it is Halloween. The, that's Halloween. It's a good point. But I would still think the guy, you know, that's working maintenance on the slurping machine would be like, man, that guy's <laughs> not going to be able to see very well driving with that thing on. <laughs> uh, do you need some help, sir? Back at Lori's house, she's got Tucker Carlson on. He announces the news that uh, the, the bus crashed and that Michael Myers has escaped so she stocks up she starts readying all the ammunition knives guns fucking molotov cocktails anything she can use she basically it's the weapons cheat from gta 3 when you punch it in and you're just given everything that's what she has here she goes and sees the Wiz and judy greer they're not having any of it uh, judy greer straight up just says you're not well and you're not welcome <laughs> in this house until you are yeah that's a that's a classic loomis move by the way because uh, Lori breaks into their home. She could have, if, if Judy Greer had been as well-trained as Jamie Lee Curtis wants her to be, Judy Greer probably would have shot her. But instead, yeah, <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis just sneaks up on her. She's like, boom, you're dead. <laughs> Come on. 
She does it, but she's not even like half as charming as Loomis. Where you know the oh, sorry, I didn't mean to startle <laughs> you there. There's a killer after you, you see. But yeah, they're, they're having no, none of it. Just get out. She tries to give him a gun, and they refuse to take it. Night has fallen in Haddonfield. Trick or treating begins. Uh, Michael on the town again. Did you have any type of nostalgia here, where we get like the throwback to the kids bumping into him? Well, yeah, um, I mean, I, I and that's happened at least in two movies I can think of. Right? It's a, it happens in the original Halloween where uh, Tommy Doyle bumps into Michael. And mm-hmm. then it happened in Curse of Michael Myers, where the new kid, was a Danny, bumps into Paul Rudd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the passing of the torch when it comes to bumps. Here, it just felt, again, it just felt artificial. It's like, oh, this whole sequence, I mean, well, this entire movie is just made up of references to the franchise. So, of course, you know, they had the moment where he bumps into someone, uh, into a little kid on Halloween. And then he just kind of goes on and kills a bunch of random people that we don't care about. Like, at least when kill the podcasters, we're like, all right, well, we've seen them in a few scenes. We have we have feelings about them. We have an opinion. You know, they're kind of douchey. But but at least when they die, it, it, it affects me. If I see him kill a random woman that I just saw for the first time uh, as he broke into her home, uh, it doesn't hit you as hard. Yeah, they do the Halloween, the first kill in Halloween 2 here. You do this little spot of the kids running into him, and it's like, oh, and then you kind of get warm and nostalgic and fuzzy, and then it just cuts to it doesn't even cut, I should say. It becomes you realize, oh, David Gordon Green has watched a Darren Aronofsky movie <laughs> because then it becomes the long panning shot behind Michael as he walks and picks up a hammer, and then, like I said, yeah, it essentially replicates the kill that opens up Halloween two, and then keeps going and walking and long panning shots just for him to kill. People that really, you know, we talked about didn't even get in his way. I mean, he just decided to take that walk and they happened to be there. (laughs) He decided to break into these homes (laughs) and they were there. And how dare them? He saw saw a hammer that he liked. So he went to the hammer. Then he saw a knife that he liked. He went to the knife. On his path, there happened to be a woman. So he killed her. Then he saw a window he liked. So he went to that window. There was a woman in front of the window. So he killed her. That's just that's just how Michael Myers operates. There's no uh, there's no big plan. There's no explanation beyond that, which is that probably the biggest thing that this movie does. Uh, it took us eleven movies to eventually go back to the starting point. We started this franchise with John Carpenter's Halloween, saying, "Listen, there's no explanation. He just kills. That's just what happens." And then. We come all the way around 11 movies later to a movie that basically says, look, we've tried to explain it, and no, forget about that. In the end, we just don't know. It just happens. He just kills. <laughs> Stop trying to make sense of it. It's it's pretty deflating. It's essentially just like a really morbid Fortnite. He just finds things to forage and build upon, and those being humans that he can kill and weapons he can use to do it. <laughs> we go to two kind of paralleling stories here. It's the Halloween dance at the local high school where Allison is with her boyfriend, Cameron. They are in Bonnie and Clyde regalia, but of course with a modern spin on it. The the boy is the girl and the girl is the boy. And running alongside that is Vicky, who is one of Allison's friends, and Dave, two of the characters we met a little bit earlier on in the movie. Uh, she is babysitting a young man and has her boyfriend over. The, the boy here who... Um, Julian is his name. It's fucking hilarious. He's one of the the legitimate comedic reliefs of the movie. Maybe 10, 11, somewhere in there. I don't know. I mean, the the, the thing is he's he's the 
stereotypical sassy black kid. So I, I think mm-hmm. that's why it's hard to pinpoint his age because he sounds older than he probably is. Like a 50-year-old man, he's just clipping his toenails in the background, <laughs> which I have just unmitigated respect for. Whatever the case, Doom is pending over all of these storylines. Obviously, we've been with the franchise this long, so we know the hot blonde with her boyfriend coming over while she's babysitting, they're probably going to get it first. Back at the high school dance, Cameron makes a total ass of himself, just completely makes out with this chick in front of his girlfriend. Yeah, this is where he became, I mean, second only to John Strode, I think. Second most hateable character in the franchise. Not because he made out with the girl. That's, that's I mean, like you said, you know, he's, he's a teenager. He's like exploring his options. I don't know how serious that relationship was. Uh, but, but the way that he reacts to being found out... Is just one denying it in the very in a very stupid way because he knows that he's been caught, but then mm-hmm. he takes Jamie Lee Curtis's granddaughter's phone and dumps it in the. It wasn't punch, I don't know, but it was like you know it's a, a bowl pudding. A, the pudding. There you go. That to me was just a pretty. It wasn't even that it was childish. It was, I mean, it was childish and it was petty. It was it was childish in its pettiness because uh, he had the nerve to act like the. The, the injured party in this whole scenario. It's like you made himself the victim. Yeah, you get caught making out with someone that's not your girlfriend, and then you have the nerve to act like, like you're offended. Uh, so, yeah, I could not wait for that guy to die. And then the fucking movie did not deliver. I was going to say, you mentioned John Strode, and at least he got massive comeuppance. Yep. This fucking asshole didn't meet his maker at all. He just. He probably slept at home that night and woke up the next day and was like, that sucks. He went back into the party and just kept making out with that other girl. To be fair, she was pretty hot, but that's here nor there. Very disappointing. And in my research, in no version of the movie that was written or filmed did he have any type of like grisly death scene. Whereas again, Halloween 6 at least got right. John Strode is a horrible person and gets the most brutal death of anyone in that movie. Uh, yeah, depending on the cut. <laughs> more sometimes more brutal than others. Back at the house, Vicky is babysitting. Michael wanders in. It was just on the beaten path that he happened to take, and unfortunately, it means that Vicky and her boyfriend Dave have met their ultimate end. Fortunately, Julian escapes. He ends up fleeing the house and getting out of there uh, relatively unscathed. Yeah, he goes and hangs out with Cameron, the the, the survivors club. <laughs> this is where we get the interstitial shot of the trick or treaters, three kids dressed in the silver shamrock uh, masks. We have the skeleton, the jack o' lantern, and the witch. One of my favorite shots in this movie. What this all leads to is it becomes obviously an active crime scene. The whole stretch of the fucking that whole block <laughs> is just <laughs> taped off. A trail of bodies. Lori shows up. Meets Dr. Uh, Sartain for the first time. Has the great line of, you're the new Loomis. Uh, This is where Laurie and uh, Deputy Hawkins come face to face. She explains, I've prayed every night that he would escape so he could kill him. And he tells her, well, that was a stupid thing to pray for. (laughs) But Laurie, Laurie's walking up and down the streets with her gun out. She almost shoots uh, the deputy when they first run into each other. It's uh, she does. Yeah, she she understands. She just follows the trail of screams. She understands that Michael's loose, and she is just haphazardly shooting into homes <laughs> when she thinks she sees him. She's uh, uh, one thing I did forget is she finds him uh, walking through the yard and actually tags him. I forgot she she completely shoots him. Yep. She shoots him in the shoulder, and there's a 
squib that goes off, so you know it made impact. Yeah, but she she's no Loomis, so you know she doesn't empty her entire uh, gun. And it don't even say Loomis because Donald Pleasance is the only one. Like Malcolm McDowell was kind of a bitch for all the compliments we gave him. <laughs> he was just like, "Stop, Michael!" And he would shoot him once and then give him time to recover. <laughs> Fucking Donald Pleasance unloads a clip in a motherfucker, and he he keeps pulling the trigger too <laughs> after it's all it's all been emptied. But it becomes now the manhunt is on. They're gonna find this motherfucker and make him fry. Judy Greer is her worst ideas and worst thoughts and worst possibilities from her childhood are all coming to life in front of her. And at this point in the movie, she still is kind of in a state of denial. She can't realize this is happening. Uh, They're trying to get in touch with Allison. Obviously, her phone is in a vat of pudding, so that's not going to go anywhere anytime soon. Uh, Grandma Lori does leave the message on her phone and make sure to give the message, do as I say. A phrase that Jamie Lee Curtis has made famous throughout this franchise. It's this franchise's uh, come with me if you want to live. (laughs) There you go. That's a good one. Nail on the head. Back with Allison, though. Not Jonah Hill. What's his name? Oscar. Oscar Oscar is trying to walk her home. And I think he realizes this is his moment. Being a, a chubby, you know, guy in high school whose coping mechanism is comedy. Ask me how I know these things. And... He tries to make a move, and she's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? He should have been and the podcaster. He, Smoothie does not play it. It's been like maybe 15 minutes. <laughs> he just tries to swoop in and make a move here. You got to give that shit like a day, maybe two. <laughs> Take him out to Dairy Queen, get some steak fingers. Be like, hey. You know, yeah, he's a real asshole. <laughs> but instead, just drunk. And the prop cans they had here made it look like they were drinking Shiner. I don't know why I caught that. But the, the beer he was... That was like cascading out of his pockets, looked like Shinerbach. Unfortunately for Oscar, is he's coming to the same path as the shape as Michael is in this backyard, and we get, to, in my opinion, the most creative scene in the movie with the motion sensor lights, mm-hmm. where Oscar is drunk and not really understanding what's going on. Motion sensor lights will go off, and then Michael will be in a di- different position of the yard, prone to strike. Yeah, it's a shame that uh, he has the mask on because really every time the lights came on, he was making a different face. You can't tell because of the mask. (laughs) This was like uh, his SNL audition (laughs) that he sent in where every shot he was doing a different character. (laughs) Unfortunately, he just had the mask on, so you never know it. Oscar goes to escape. He's screaming fucking bloody murder, screaming for help, any semblance of, of sanity. He gets stabbed in the back, and Allison thinks he's fucking around, and that, again... Uh, when I was in high school, uh, I fainted during a choir concert, <laughs> and I fell back on a girl, uh, two girls behind me, and because I was such a practical joker and, you know, the funny guy, the fat funny guy, they thought I was kidding. So they both let go of me, and I fell, and I hit my head really hard <laughs> on the floor. So I could relate to Oscar in this particular situation. Uh, there's this story about this boy that cries wolf and has some laughs, and I don't really know how it ended. But for Oscar here... He screams out for help, and she comes back thinking he's fucking around. Dude's not face. His jaw is impaled on this fence. It's fucking terrifying. And then, I'm sorry, I understand we're in Contrarian's Corner here, but the score that John Carpenter kicks in right here, God, I can just see John Carpenter standing up, you know, at the computer where he's putting all his music together. He's got these massive sunglasses on, 
and like a fucking bandana tied frontwards like Tupac style, rocking the fuck out to this. The score here is god tier shit. He, he rolls his sleeves first. You know, he stands up, rolls his <laughs> sleeves, and then goes to town. He he presses the space bar because that you know continues <laughs> what you're playing. And then Deborah Hill's just like, crank it up, <laughs> louder, faster. <laughs> Michael's on the hunt. The shape hunts as the the title here used would indicate. Allison runs, finds assistance at least, not unlike her grandmother eventually finding help in the original. We don't have the awesome scene, though, from the original where uh, Lori is like, help! And that person comes to the window and looks at her and then turns their front porch light off. I, I wish we could have had some sort of homage to that with Allison. She's rescued by, you know, whoever, Jane Smith and Haddonfield. Cops come and pick her up. They... Uh, Get her over to Lori and Karen, which head to Lori's fallout shelter. And this is where I have here. Lori is fucking insane because she has her monologue here about how Michael's waited for this night. He's come for me and I've been waiting for him. And it's like, uh, no, not really. <laughs> he, I'm pretty sure he doesn't even know who you are right now. Uh, as was indicated by when he just walked right by you and you shot him and he didn't really react to it at all. Allison, she gets picked up by by the deputy and the doctor, right? And were they supposed Correct. to be Correct. She is not to... back with the uh, Yeah, they were going to take her to um to be with her mother, but you're exactly right. She gets picked up by the deputy and the doctor and the, and during this is when they come across Michael. This was this was frustrating. I had forgotten that this happened. Not not the yes. not the switcheroo, but uh, just basically Will Patton's uh, untimely fate. I had forgotten about it. undignified deaths. Yes. It's like yeah. you gave him. Lori has that. You gave him that introduction to let him go like this. <laughs> Lori has that monologue before the scene that we're speaking about because my next note says movie derails. Uh, <laughs> in that we, yeah, Will Patton runs over Michael. They find him just walking, you know, by the local baseball field or some shit, and runs over him. And the doctor runs out to because he says like, "Don't kill him," in a really terrible Loomis impression <laughs> yep. and Patton still says you know I'm gonna blow his fucking brains out get out of the way and then for no fucking reason Dr. Sartan you know I guess is taken over by the spirit of Michael and he stabs Will Patton in the throat and kills him and then he puts on the mask for some fucking reason <laughs> loads Michael in the car uh, he's unconscious but sitting next to Allison and this fucker thinks he's going to stage some reunion, <laughs> like it's some reality TV show that he's going to get some massive ratings for. Did you notice when he was, because uh, he puts a mask on, then he takes it off, because obviously he realizes that it's really hard to move I around with that. I can't drive wearing this fucking <laughs> yeah. thing. Uh, but do you notice when he took the mask off on the back of his neck, you could see the, the thorn tattoo? Are you being serious? No. <laughs> oh, okay. Like, but you said Damn it, dude. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I wish they had. You know, there's in the sea of references that this movie throws at you, the two big missed opportunities was uh, were a reference to the thorn, which you could have done here. You know, the, the doctor goes crazy. Why? Oh, because he has the sign of the thorn or whatever. And two, when Michael was on his rampage, walking through every single house in Haddonfield, there were a lot of like TVs that were on. I wish there'd been a TV that was playing uh, Season of the Witch in this Halloween. Just just throw it out there. Yeah. Uh, you know, just see uh, Tom Atkins's face screaming. That would have been great. God, that would have been that would have justified this complete bullshit <laughs> side plot of the movie with the doctor 
if uh, Sartain had looked at Will Patton and said, it's your game now, Doctor. That, <laughs> yes, that would have been fantastic. You got me like unreasonably hyped there. I thought like I was going to have to go back and rewatch the scene after we finished recording. When this movie first came out, Julio and I reviewed it uh, in the Real Talk portion of whatever uh, movie we discussed that week. And I was reminded of that during this because one of the things we really harped on that was fucking awful was right after this scene here with the doctor killing Will Patton, we go to these two bumpkin cops talking about sandwiches. (laughs) And have we come across anything in the Halloween franchise that is as tonally displacing as this is? Well, so number one, it's written by Danny McBride, part two. Right. This is this. This is it. <laughs> They're just riffing. Uh, and then I think I, I even said it on that uh, previous conversation we had about this Halloween uh, a couple of years ago uh, that I thought that maybe it was it was a, a homage to the to the bumbling cops from five. But the thing is, even in five, five is, is such a mess that the cops are not out of place. They're just of a piece no. with the rest of the movie. <laughs> Here, yeah. it's just it's just a it's a Saturday Night Live skit just to bring Saturday Night Live up again. It's it's like they needed a scene where the cops were just bullshitting, so they just gave him a conversation about sandwiches. It has nothing to do with anything else in the movie. I would have much preferred they just brought back a Tina type character for one scene instead. <laughs> like here's this dumb bimbo that is just here for no reason no instead yeah we get the cops talking about fucking sandwiches and brownies the whole point of it is it's just a waste of time but they see the the cop car the doctor's now driving up the road and the doctor's pulled over uh, accosting allison about uh, using her to help michael speak Michael wakes up, wouldn't you know it? This doctor's been studying him for fucking X amount of years, and he doesn't understand that this guy's going to just kill you if he gets the chance. So what does he do? He breaks out the plexiglass in the cop car. He gets out. Fortunately for Allison, she's able to skedaddle, but the doctor you know, gets thrown down. Michael stands over him. This moron, say something. What did he think was going to happen? What did he think Michael was going to Michael stomps his fucking head in. I, I know I keep making yeah. this joke, but yeah, he should have just gone, hey, boo, then the stomp. Or hail Hydra or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what it should have been? Is the fucking Sartain, Sardine, the doctor, says, you know, say something. And Michael goes, no, I don't think I will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he stomps his head in, and it's the theatrical cut of part six where fucking john strode's head explodes (laughs) that's basically this james courtney the guy who played michael myers in this movie essentially just stomps down in a bag of concord grapes and fucking oil and it just shoots out everywhere this doctor got what he fucking deserved and i will say for that stupid subplot derailing the movie at least it was redeemed in him getting one of the most brutal deaths possible so Good on you, Kenny Powers. Yeah, if not Cameron, at least uh, fake Loomis. Back at the home, Lori and Karen have a mother-daughter moment. To put it mildly, the weight of the situation is finally hitting her. and She understands that maybe my mom wasn't really that crazy. Maybe she took it a bit too far, but this shit is real. And Lori explains, you know, I'm sorry for not being a good mother to you, but I raised you for this situation if it ever happened. Uh, sadly, Toby Huss, who had massively outkicked his coverage with a companion in life falls 
into the the trap of investigating the noise and seeing what's going on. He sees the cop car outside and he goes out to check on it. And this concludes the segment of the movie that is absolutely offensive to me as a Halloween fan. There's been maybe five minutes of real time that have elapsed since Michael was confronted by these police officers and he had time to create like this artistic, you know, this uh, nativity scene in this cop car where he hollows out one of their heads and puts it on a flashlight. And then the whiz, the whiz dies. And I would be much more upset if it wasn't because of some ridiculous fucking arts and craft project that Michael had. But that's, again, that's this movie, right? It, it will sacrifice logic and, uh, efficiency i guess for the sake of throwing some sort of a reference to previous movies in the franchise in this case is well of course it's a halloween movie so you have to have michael myers have at least one gory display in one of his kills so this time it was the two cops what this does in essence though is it sets the stage for one of the reviews that julio had uh read in the the first portion we are women hear us roar this is where the movie becomes the Strode gals against Michael Myers. I'm fine with the whiz perishing to advance gender equality. (laughs) There will be sacrifices that are necessary. In this case, it's one of them. Michael, again, he's not specifically hunting Lori, but she definitely thinks he is. Does the classic arm through the window. He's trying to grab a hold of her. She shoots fucking half of his hand off with a shotgun. It's so metal. You can't help but audibly emote to this happening. Just like, yeah. Yeah, but at the same Uh, time, so she's been preparing for this for 40 years. And the first thing she does, knowing that he's out there, is stand by the door that has those glass panes <laughs> with her back. To, it's just like she's inviting him to break in and almost kill her. Yeah, she like puts her ear to the door like, who's out there? Uh, <laughs> oh, Jesus. Come on, Lori. After all that preparation, all that Fox News she watched, and that was, you know... She went out without her mask. That's all it took. I was about to say months and months of grocery shopping without a mask. And this is <laughs> hoisted by her own petard in this situation. Michael gets his hand shot off. Lori goes down to the basement, explains, you know, this is what we're going to do. Uh, so Judy Greer is strapped up, ready to go. Lori at this point uh, knows that Michael's made his way into the house. So she starts going room by room, one by one. Each one of them has a gate that'll drop down. Unfortunately, she eventually comes across Toby Huss. He is uh, a little bit worse for wear in the sense that he is dead. Uh, (laughs) Michael appears from the shadows and begins to attack Lori, throws her off the second-story balcony at her home, goes to uh, survey the damage, looks over, sees her motionless. At this point, Allison, who had just been foraging through the woods, makes it back to the home and comes in. Mom, Grandma help so michael knows there's fresh meat there so he cocks his head turns back around looks down we get the iconic recreation of the original film where laurie's gone Mm -hmm. difference being in the original like there was an imprint of where michael's body was (laughs) and there was a trail of blood laurie just like gets up and scampers away like the cloverfield monster (laughs) and is just nowhere to be found yeah, the the moment that you start giving Laurie Strode the same sort of supernatural abilities as Michael Myers, then, well, now you're making a superhero movie, 
right? The whole appeal is that it's, it's this unstoppable evil force versus a regular person. Even if you decide, okay, well, it's going to be a regular person that has a shitload of guns. It should still be somebody who, if she falls out of the window, that's it for her for a good while, right? But Lori kind mm-hmm. of just, she's a, she's a female Michael now. Uh, and instead of a, a knife, she has a gun. But it, it's she's Michelle. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Michelle Strode. Yeah, she. Uh, I mean, the, this entire movie has made her less and less interesting as it went along. So of course, why stop? Judy Greer rescues her daughter, brings her down to the fallout shelter that's below, like a, a kitchen island. We had one like that in my parents' house. And Kyle, that's kind of what I thought of when I saw it. I always wondered if maybe there was a fallout shelter underneath it. <laughs> But then I remembered, you can't really have those in Texas. The soil doesn't support it. <laughs> so I was bummed we didn't see, like, her food supply. We saw, like, her weapons cache. But I'm curious if she had, like, fucking... Tuna cans? Well, not tuna, but, like, things that she bought immediately after that are clearly expired. <laughs> Ninja Turtles, Chef Boyardee type things. Uh, or, like, promotional items for movies that are way too old. She she has, like, um, Adventures of Ford Fairlane popcorn buckets. <laughs> And uh, Curse of Michael Myers thermos. That would have been the real one if she had like Season of the Witch candy, <laughs> like Season of the Witch. I'm trying to think of something they would have made to cross promote at that point in time. Whatever the case. So Judy Greer gets her daughter down and they're in the fallout shelter. They're as quiet as a mouse, not a peep in the house. Uh, Michael, though, is not a, an idiot. I mean, he knows how to drive after all. So he, he realizes, oh, this massive cabinet that's in the way might be covering up something the the architecture of this kitchen doesn't make particular sense so let's get this out of the way and see what happens through enough finessing he's able to tip it over rip it off and this is where we get uh, judy greer's oscar clip where she has the gun and she begins crying and screaming and calling for her mother saying i can't do it i can't do it i'm sorry and as soon as michael comes into focus she says gotcha and shoots him right in the fucking collarbone and we get one of like his um like when male actors first start in porn and don't know how much they're supposed to emote at climax, you just get, get this kind of like, and that's what we get from Michael right here. And then, and then this just becomes this fantasy slasher movie where it cuts to like the, the moonlight hitting Jamie Lee's face at just the right time. And she, she says, happy Halloween, Michael, right? Yep. It's, it's the ending of yeah. uh, death proof. The Tarantino. Uh, <laughs> yes. It's just, it's just three women beating up Michael Myers, who falls for it time and again. <laughs> it turns out that this was a very uh, far-fetched plan on Jamie Lee Curtis's side, because apparently... Well, to be fair, she had 40 years to plan well, it. Right, but there has to have been an easier way of dispose of Michael Myers than lure him into the basement and then trap him there so that you could burn him alive right it's like when you have a gazillion guns in the basement why would you trap him in the basement <laughs> now he has access to all those guns uh if he wasn't so dumb he could have just like shot them uh, once he was down there <laughs> the fucking end of independence day jeff goldblum just assuming that the aliens are going to have the same software we have <laughs> it's just like we'll just assume this fucking insane person who hasn't spoken for 40 years We'll know to rip this off, and then I'll be hiding back here and make sure the light hits me just right, <laughs> and then I can stab him. She's essentially relying on a Rube Goldberg test that she's formulated for 40 years to work out. Right. Part um, of the plan was also but again, the Wiz dying. It, it all had to fit together. 
<laughs> that's where it started to unravel. <laughs> but again, you got to blame the dumbass doctor. The movie tries to celebrate the ingenuity here of the Strode gals. Michael didn't want to be there. <laughs> like they, he, he, he could have been anywhere else. He didn't really want to stalk Lori or the granddaughter or anything. They just happened to be in the way. But if that doctor hadn't brought him out there, this would have never happened. They essentially just trapped a feral dog <laughs> and were like, ha, 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 gotcha, you dumbass. Yeah. There's the two things that kind of, well, the one thing that really bothers me and the other one that's just like, eh. uh, the thing that really bothers me, and I also might have brought it up before, is that for somebody who's as obsessed with making sure that Michael is dead, Rory is pretty quick to just kind of walk away, right? If if it was me, I would have made sure, you know, after the fire's done, I would have gone looking for the body. And then once I find the, the burned corpse, I would just cut the head off <laughs> and bury the head somewhere else. Uh, but no, she's, she's happy with just assuming that Michael's not going to escape that fire. And then they just kind of hitchhike out of there. To me, it seemed to betray this obsession that she'd had through the entire movie. Uh, then the other thing yeah, is they that, find... you know, like like you said, so this is just a, a big celebration of, of woman power, which is great, except that it comes at the expense of making every single male character in the movie an idiot, Michael Myers included. Uh, there's not a single male character I can think of that has any sort of redeeming quality. Right? They all either die stupidly. Julian. Who's Julian? Oh, the little kid? Eh, I guess. Yeah. Kind of. Maybe. I, I, okay, so what the movie's saying is that if, you, if you're young enough, you're not, uh, you haven't been corrupted yet. You, you haven't developed the, the stupidity that the rest of the male species uh, develops once they become young adults. Yeah. It's true. But yeah, I, I mean, I would have liked to see, I think you can make a movie about woman power about strong female characters standing up to their the threats heading their way that the threats that have terrorized them for years for decades without suddenly turning everybody else around them into idiots uh, i think that that mm -hmm. diminishes actually the power of the message it doesn't work for me when you have that final moment it's a fucking freeze frame too at the very end there was no challenge really i wish that somebody had actually made a decent case against the way that laurie strode was dealing with her obsession and that it would be a much more interesting movie if you get to this ending and you're like, yeah, okay, so she she won, but at what price? But instead, it's the movie saying, yeah, she won, and you know what? In the end, it was all worth it. Yeah, she lost her kid, but you know, Judy Greer knew when to shoot. To me, it's just not. Uh, it it loses its way thematically uh, in that final uh, final act. So yeah, they run out to the street and like a literal re recreation of uh, there's a Simpsons episode where Homer's hitchhiking in the country and this farmer pulls up and Homer has to sit in the flatbed because the guy's pig is riding up front with him. <laughs> and this says, I'm afraid old Zeke sits up front with me. And they, he just makes all three girls get in the flatbed, which I, I guess this may have tried to bend an homage to fucking Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the fact that they all just jump in the flatbread, but I don't fucking Where's know. Where's the shot? And then we get the shot the, of Michael just swinging his mask. And then we get uh, the shot of the interior of the basement. Michael's gone. All the flames are roaring and Michael's no longer there. Uh, there is the freeze frame on the knife, which I guess some people interpret it as like the evil had been passed on. But then um, if you watch the credits, at the end of the credits, you start to hear the the breathing. So he, Michael lived. Michael will return in Halloween, the Infinity Soldier. 
So, <laughs> and then at the very end, uh, in love and memory of Mustafa, Vaya con Dios. Yes, produced by Malik Akkad. I saw. Um, obviously, a movie that would not have been made without Mustafa Akkad. So, uh, fitting, a fitting conclusion to it, and a fitting conclusion to Haddonfield Nights in many ways. And I think this is going to yield some interesting discussion <laughs> in the the real talk portion of this podcast, as I think there are many feelings all around. Good and bad. All sorts so, of feelings. Julio, are we ready to move this along? Yes. Let's go to real talk. Friends of the Contrarians, for the final installment of Haddonfield Nights, friend of the podcast Chris Lemchi offers his thoughts on the 2018 Halloween, the direct sequel to the original. I actually went to an opening night screening of this film with Chris. Both had a great time, and it's a good memory I hold dear. It's one I was able to reflect upon during Haddonfield Nights. Be sure to check out Chris's podcast, What's My Line, on Podbean, and follow him on Twitter at the Chris Lemchi, T H E C H R I S. L-E-M-C-H-I. Now let's get to Chris's thoughts on David Gordon Green's contribution to the Halloween franchise. And following, we'll get back to the Contrarians for some real talk. All right, Contrarians, Chris Lemchi here, and I'm here to give you my thoughts on the film Halloween. And no, I'm not talking about the original film in 1978, also called Halloween. I'm talking about its sequel. And no, not talking about the Halloween 2 movie that came out in 1981. I am talking about... The Halloween sequel that came out in 2018, which ignores the continuity of Halloween 2, Halloween H2O, Halloween Resurrection, and all the other Halloweens. So no longer is Michael Myers Laurie Strode's brother. Um, well, obviously the cult and the Sam Hain and Paul Rudd stuff was already deleted from continuity. But those films don't, didn't happen. Obviously the Rob Zombie films didn't happen, especially that Rob Zombie H2, which is awful. I am here to talk to you guys about Halloween 2018, which Jamie Lee Curtis is coming back as the role of Laurie Strode. And like I said, it just immediately takes place after the original. So the original happens. Michael Myers uh, escapes, or I guess somewhere in the night. Like, I guess he got captured because it fast forwards to 40 years and he is in the uh, in some kind of asylum and he's locked up. Um, 
And obviously, you know how the story goes. He, he'll eventually get, he gets out. And it's, this movie is building to this confrontation between Michael and Laurie Strode. Strode. And I like the what I like what they do with here because, like like I mentioned, he's no, they're no longer brother and sister, so there's no there's no motivation for Michael to go after him. And that's kind of the thing I like the most because Michael's not like Freddy or Jason who have motives for their killings. He just just he's there's a reason why he's called the shape. He just does it. That's what's terrifying about him. He just he just went he just one day just woke up from his little his trance and just went went out and just went crazy. That's terrifying. You don't need to have like a reason to do it. Which is again, growing up I always thought, you know, since again it came out in nineteen eighty one, I was born in nineteen eighty eight, so my entire life the story was they were brother and sister, brother and sister. So it was kinda weird for me to kinda like remove that from my head. But again, this movie they definitely go out of the way to tell you that they're not related, and this movie does a good job of just bringing bringing back Michael as his force again. Like he's not even going after Laurie Strode; it's just he just happens to kind of get in her way. She thinks that she's he's going to come after her, but in reality, he's just this force that hadn't filled. And he just happens to kind of come across Laurie Strode again. There's one point in the film where it kind of loses me because there's a doctor character, and he kind of goes a little bit off the rails, and it's almost enough for me to just kind of walk out. But they quickly just kind of turn the boat and say, "All right, we, you thought we were gonna go here, but let's kind of steer clear of that." So it's it's a weird scene, but they don't really go too much into it. It's just it's it kind of just serves you to get to a certain point, and it pretty much just leads to the climax of the film. And I love what they do when Laurie confronts Michael again, because you, as you remember from that first movie, Laurie is just this, like timid scared high school girl who's yeah in the film she's scared to like ask like ben tramer out on a date whereas this laurie's is hardened like ptsd she suffered this massive trauma when she was 17 and you can tell it shows and it's kind of affected her life it's affected her family because now she has a daughter and a granddaughter you can see the effects of, of that night on them and you can see how jamie lee curtis does this she does this great job of portraying laurie as this victim this is this not necessarily a victim, but this hardened soldier. It's she's kind of similar to, yeah, I wouldn't say just like, but she's similar to Sarah Connor in a sense. Like I would, call, I would give her like Sarah Connor in T two, where she's just preparing for this this night that may never come. Because even like her uh, her daughter, which is played by the fantastic and underrated Judy Greer, is always telling her like it's not happening. You're going crazy. You know, Michael's locked up. But still, Laurie keeps preparing. She again, she said, she said she's Sarah Connor. She's preparing for the day. So when they finally do meet up, it's just a great cheering for Laurie because this is what she's been waiting for her entire life for forty years, confronting confronting her abuser. And it pains me that we're not getting Halloween kills this year because we were supposed to get it this month in October, and then you know COVID happened, so it got pushed back to next year. And then they're going to do a third movie called Halloween Ends right after that. So it sucks that we're not getting Halloween kills, but I am willing to wait. Until next year, hopefully, I mean, knock on some wood that it was they don't get pushed back again. But I am willing to wait because I like what they do with the story. I believe the director was David Gordon Green. I like what the direction he's taking with it. I don't want to say Michael became silly, but like when you watch like Halloween like six, and then also Halloween Resurrection, and then the Rob Zombie films do him a complete just disservice. Michael Myers kind of loses that like fear in those later sequels. So this film was able to kind of bring that back. Um, yeah, you kind of, you kind of feel like yeah he he's not just Michael again he's he's back to being the shape. Granted, I guess you could have ended it with this film, but they left it open and yeah, J uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was great, Judy Judy Gear is great. 
And yeah, bring on more Halloween. Since you guys are listening to Contrarians, just remember, they're right and you're wrong. And also, thank you guys for calling me a Green Lantern. I hope to one day fulfill that promise for you guys. And just for a little Green Lantern tease here, in brightest day and darkest night, I hope you guys enjoyed my insight. Happy Halloween. All right. I am recording for Real Talk for the Halloween. We already made the joke in the first portion, but we have reached our conclusion, at least for now. The most recent one I watched was the the blob, the Steve McQueen movie that said the end and then put the question mark. The end? <laughs> and that's kind of where we are here. Uh, now, with this movie, we will have covered Every Halloween movie with the exception of two and Resurrection. Yep. That is, out of 11 movies, that's pretty damn impressive. Yeah. And I've watched two, like we said, I haven't seen Resurrection. That's the only one I haven't seen. I'll get around to it one time or another. I I mean, I'm sure eventually I'll see it streaming for free again and I'll jump on it. Uh, But based on everything you've told me, I don't know that I want to pay to watch it. So. You do not. I was about to say there are literally thousands of movies that you should watch before that. But wait, but so, but you own it, right? Because you said I think you said that you own every Halloween now. No, 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 oh. no. I own uh, every Halloween that I want to own. Uh, <laughs> I own every Halloween except for Resurrection and the second Rob Zombie one. No, the thing was when we prepped for this because I didn't own H two O, I had to look harder to find a copy of just H2O because all the readily available ones were combos with resurrection. (laughs) And I didn't want to own that. It's just kind of (laughs) like, I I understand that's extremely pretentious and nerdy, but it's for the same reason that like my Terminator collection cuts off at three. (laughs) I don't need to own anything after that. That's okay. I own the other ones. So, you know, together we have a full set with our powers combined. You can, uh, yeah, you you can co-own salvation. I'll, I'll allow it. Blessed. Thank you. Yeah. So I guess that, that you know, leads me to the question, which version, which format, how did you watch this movie? Goddamn. You, you are using my trope now because I forgot to do it in the first <laughs> half. God bless you. I own the Blu-ray, the initial Blu-ray that was released. I think they made a steelbook through Best Buy, which I was jealous of because that came out shortly after. But I've just got the regular ass universal release. So is this streaming anywhere? How'd you come across it? Uh, Prime Video. I I got it off Prime. And this time I watched it on my laptop. Mainly, I just kind of wanted to stay out of the way of uh, the living room. Let my wife enjoy her time after work (laughs) in the living room. And I just went to my room with my laptop. I've seen this movie before. I, I watch it in theaters. So... It was okay, you know. It's, I didn't feel like, oh well, I owe it to to the movie to watch it in the biggest screen I have available. It's like ah, I've seen it before, so I can watch it just in in my pretty decent laptop screen, and it was fine. Obviously, I, I would... missed a couple things. The reference to the the kids from uh, Season of the Witch, but that's probably more yeah. to do with me taking notes as opposed to me uh, not seeing things properly on the screen. I would argue this. There are maybe three or four Halloween movies before this that I would be like, oh, man, you got to watch it on a big screen. Oh, you got to watch it. You know, (laughs) I think um, obviously the original that just visually speaking um, four, specifically just for the opening sequence of that movie deserves to be viewed on a 
on on the big TV. And then there's some really interesting cinematic choices in the Rob Zombie one that I think this movie retains all of its impact regardless of the screen size that you watch it on. So not going to castigate you for that one. (laughs) Well, good. We're off to a good start. (laughs) Halloween 2018 released on October 19th of 2018. I would have been in the theater on the 18th. Because that's how we do things now. We say a movie is released on a day, but then we do just normal screenings of it the day before. Um, I was there with friend of the podcast, Reed, and also a friend of our podcast, Chris Lemchi. I do not remember what the last movie before this was that I was exci- as excited for. Maybe The Dark Knight. There's, there's probably something in between. Maybe Dark Knight Rises. I was going to say Dark Knight Rises. Uh, or, yeah, I was full mast for that uh, i think the master came after dark knight rises i'm trying to put my dates together spring breakers i think probably would have been the movie that i was the previous most excited about so all that is to say good god i remember watching the trailer for this movie and like m- my heart was racing when it was over <laughs> and that's not something we joke a lot but with what Julio and I have done, and you've been in it longer than I have, Julio, spending, you know, over, you know, 40, sometimes up to 60 or 70 hours a week around movies and seeing trailers and just being around that constantly, it is incredibly easy to become jaded by it. Right. So for people like myself and Julio, when like a trailer gets us, gets the blood pumping or some primal reaction from us, um, this isn't me saying oh you know we're harder to woo it's just basically that's the the cards we've been dealt with the the career choices we made at some point when i saw this trailer like i remember i was sitting at my computer and like my hands were shaking and i was just like oh my fucking god uh when he puts the mask on and we'll get it we'll go through the quotes and everything and we'll get to this movie itself and what it means overall but my hype level for this movie was pretty much unlike anything I that has occurred in my legitimate adulthood, which has probably been from like 28 on. Uh, <laughs> I, it took me a long time to grow up and realize, you know, how to properly harness excitement and things. For this, it was just absolutely out of control. Whether or not it lived up to everything and whether or not that has stayed that is something we will discuss here shortly. But in that moment, I was so ready for this movie. Now, this is a movie that is 79% right on the edge of 80 there. Uh, it's still viewed as fresh, uh, but that means obviously there were some naysayers about it. Based on the quotes you had chosen for the first portion, Julio, I'm curious to see what uh, negative ones you pulled. So <laughs> what were the... What were the detractors saying? More Donald Pleasance. Uh, yeah. Where is where is the real Loomis? Uh, all right. So I got a, I got a few rotten quotes, starting with Stephen Procopi from Third Coast Review, who says, I somehow sat through the entirety of director David Gordon Green's Halloween and was never scared. How is that possible? Were you scared, Alex? I, you know, 
whether the movie worked in other aspects or not, did this movie scare you at any point? It was when the doctor There's, when the doctor put the mask, you were scared that the- that is that is absolutely <laughs> not when that was. Um, oh, it was the trailer the when he drops the teeth on the floor. Mm-hmm. I, I felt that was kind of one of those scenes that I understand <clears throat> that's not exclusive to this movie. That's just kind of the the way the cookie crumbles now. You got to give a lot of the shit away in the trailer, mm-hmm. but that particular scene I remember really fucking freaking me out, and then wondering how we got there. I was like, "Oh man, how do we get there?" And then in the movie, you find out you don't really even see what happens. He just <laughs> beats the fuck out of this dude, rips his teeth out of his face. Uh, lovely, lovely. Uh, uh, the the kid dying. I remember that really mm-hmm. jostling me watching it in the theater because you you don't expect that. Yeah, I think that the, the, we should probably make the distinction though between being disturbed and being scared, because okay, I I, I I'm with you. Like the the scene with the kid is pretty disturbing, but I don't know that I was ever afraid. Uh, of course, maybe I was afraid this first time I watched it because I mean I remember watching it here. I knew that the kid was was done. He I knew that he was mm-hmm. gonna die, uh, and maybe the first time when I didn't know I was afraid for him, but I don't remember. All right, Willow McClay from Curtsies and Hand Grenades says, Halloween is merely a shortcut for the same boring, strong female lead characterizations we've been seeing for the better part of 20 years now. I want to punch this guy in the face. (laughs) Uh, He also doesn't like uh, Aliens. Or any of the mm-hmm. movies in the Alien franchise. Yep. He he hates Sarah Connor, and just in general, uh, seems to have a serious problem with, uh, I guess, women, women, <laughs> women not being victims. Uh, come on, Willow. You know what? The the, the worst part is I can't tell because Willow could go either way. It could be. It could be a a woman that hates uh, strong female lead characterizations. Or it could be a man. I don't know. That's true. Oh, uh, well. Stephen Garrett from Book and Film Globe says, This new Halloween is really more a fetish object than a horror film. Uh, fetish object is in... What are you fetishizing? Carpenter's original? I, mean, I can see that maybe. Or even the franchise in general. Uh, <clears throat> and finally, this this was funnier before you stole the joke in Contrarian's Corner, but... Uh, Matt Brunson from Film Frenzy says, Well, I guess this is what happens when a valuable franchise is entrusted to the guys who foisted your highness upon an unsuspecting <laughs> world. <laughs> uh, Unavoidable. Well, yes. It had to be expected. I was thinking they were going to take a pot shot at Eastbound and Down, but anyone that's ever watched that show really understands that it's actually very well written. Uh, David Gordon Green, director, written by Jeff... Uh, Fradley, Danny McBride, and the aforementioned David Gordon Green. A uh, budget of around $15 million for a box office return of over $250 million. It brought home the bacon <laughs> in many aspects. I, I guess I don't really know where to begin with this one, Julio. It's um, well, I, I, I have a, I have a starting point. Built up so much for this moment. I, I, I have a starting point because one of the constants of Haddonfield Nights and just our overall conversations about Halloween and the franchise and Michael Myers uh, has been uh, maybe our biggest point of contention, right? Where you like your Michael Myers impenetrable. Uh, 
unreadable. We don't know why this is happening. We just know mm-hmm. that he exists and he inflicts pain. And, well, the best thing you can do is get the fuck out of his way, <laughs> uh, which is what this movie does, basically, right? This movie, one of the main things it does is just do away with all the backstory, all the mythology that was uh, built up over the sequels and just almost, almost start from scratch. Uh and I am on the other camp where I kind of I find more interesting the the idea of what's going on with Michael Myers. What makes him tick? Why is he doing this? I don't need a dissertation about his his motives, and I don't need uh, I, I certainly do not need a secret cult uh, controlling his actions and you know tattoos <laughs> and constellations and all that. But I find it the moment when the narrative grabs me the most across this franchise is when there is a character that's trying to figure out what's going on, whether they reach an answer or not. Because I think that that's when it elevates beyond just being a slasher movie. And it's just, it can become a, a more of an examination of evil. And I understand that the the point that you make uh, is that, well, maybe what the franchise is saying uh, directly or indirectly, is that there is no explanation for evil sometimes. And sometimes evil is just evil. But I never feel like the movies themselves say that. I think that that's just kind of a, a place that we arrive at by default. And I, I think that I would like it more if we if we reach that conclusion in the movie. One of the quotes that I didn't pick said something about how it was a positive quote about how this movie, with the character of Laurie, 40 years later, what she's saying is, stop trying to figure him out and just kill him or stay out of his way. And uh, it's just funny because that kind of came up in Contreras Corner. And in a way, I guess that's, that's where Loomis started in the first Halloween. So mm-hmm. I don't necessarily feel it. I can see how you can read it that way. But I guess all this disinterest just... Are you satisfied with this depiction of Michael Myers? And do you think that the sacrifice of getting rid of all the stuff that was built up in the sequels, uh, do you think that the trade-off is worth it, right? If you go with discontinuity, then there's no more Loomis, you know, at least not in this universe. There's no, I, I guess there will be a Tommy Doyle. In the next movie, from from what we've learned, but at least so far, mm-hmm. you know, there's no no Tommy Doyle. There's uh, they're not related. The the whole relation between Michael Myers and, and Laurie Strode is a throwaway joke in this one. Uh, are you are you satisfied with that trade off? Because I know you like the sequels. You know, I like some of them. Yeah, <laughs> I always think of when thinking about horror movie sequels. Think of. Um... I can't remember which Friday the 13th it was going to be, but there was at one point in time, might have been like six or seven in that franchise, there was this idea that they were going to bring back all of the survivors from the first, like, you know, five movies, like the individual people that survived and they were going to come together to defeat Jason finally, which I always thought that's like such a fucking cool idea. And, I think when you're dealing with an industry like the slasher franchise that playing to your fans is 
probably going to be more complimentary to you than playing to just a broader audience. Mm-hmm. The problem is Friday the 13th never had a movie as good as Halloween. <laughs> The original Halloween. Nightmare on Elm Street never had a movie as good as the original Halloween. And then they did that weird thing where they tried to turn Texas Chainsaw Massacre into a a slasher franchise, which it's really not. But, you know, that's that's where the difficulty kicks in. And if you want to, yes, you can continue on this weird road trip of this character, Michael Myers, and coming up with all this different wacky shit, and then he ends up, you know on an internet show and he's this (laughs) member of this cult or he's this thing being used by this cult, this entity, this weapon being used by. At the end of the day, you're coming from one of the greater uh, movies, at least of a genre. Obviously, I view it as one of the greater movies ever, but uh, something that changed the game. And I think eventually someone's going to want to pay respect to that. And that's what happened here. Um, And part of that is... To do that, you have to just go to the well or from where it originated. Not even the, there was no well there. You have to go back to the ground where it began. I know that this wasn't exclusive to David Gordon Green or Dana McBride, the, this idea. I know when this movie was in development, because uh, it was 10 years, nine years mm-hmm. between the second Rob Zombie one and this. I know somewhere along the way, the idea and the production company that was going to finance it, the idea was this is going to be a direct sequel to the original. So that was something that was being toyed around with for a while. I love Halloween 4 so much that, you know, my idea, some crazy amalgamation of it all would be bringing back Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, but still having Daniel Harris and the idea of the Jamie character the way 4 left off, not five when she's a mutant all that okay but the problem with that is then you begin uh ostracizing a certain amount of your audience and creating separation because (laughs) halloween 4 as much money as it made it did not is not commonly understood movie like the original halloween is i get it it's a movie that came out 40 years later and the quickest way to attract the biggest audience as possible is to just pick up and create a story almost as simple as where it originated the highest compliment i can give this movie personally is my dad watched it and he was like yeah it was pretty good and my dad like (laughs) hates horror movies he thinks they're stupid and he always he doesn't understand you know in his words i waste my time watching the friday the 13th movies and things like that and the halloween sequels he watched halloween 4 with me one time he's like this is so dumb and obviously it can't be understated the level of acting in this movie is if we're going to define this as a slasher movie, this may be the highest pedigree of acting a slasher movie has ever been given. Uh, so Dude, that's not something. Donald Pleasance is rolling in his grave. Okay. Hold on. <laughs> Big Don knows I got love for him. And as we talked about in his performances, he is clearly the best part of what he's in. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we've watched with him, though, is with a bunch of raw talent. Yeah, This movie, man, uh, I mean, we gave him some guff, but Toby Huss, <laughs> just in his small part, phenomenal. Jamie Lee Curtis, obviously great. Judy Greer, putting that aside just because I have so much high praise to give her. I, I guess you could say... Uh, B- Bill Bilginer, Bilginer, the gentleman who played 
Uh, Sartain, Dr. Sartain is a bit over the top, but Will Patton's awesome yep. for what little they give him. I joked a lot about the guy who played Oscar, but the teenagers are pretty good. Yeah. There's really not, there's not any like stunted, really sub porn level acting that became the norm in like the 2000 slashers, the Final Destination movies and things of that nature. I really think this, the Oscar guy was. I think the way he was written was probably what I was like, uh, kind of rolling my eyes at. The guy who played Dave kind of seemed annoying. But again, it's good news if we're saying one performance was questionable in a slasher movie. I think to answer your question in a really roundabout way, this was in a lot of ways the best we could have hoped for. <laughs> in 2018, trying to make sense of all of that other shit and still trying to make a commercially accessible movie would have been near impossible. And I think it also creates a situation where real fans of the franchise get to still have all that. And it hasn't necessarily been, you know, bastardized or damaged. This just created another timeline. And, you know, Halloween now has what, four, five different timelines that exist. And I, me personally, as someone who loves Halloween 4, and I would have liked to have seen Daniel Harris showing up, but at the same time, that didn't happen. This did, and that's great, and I still get to hold 4 close to me, and I don't have to say, like, God, they fucking killed it. It's like, um, you know, we've talked about both on our podcast and off, when X-Men 3 came out, <laughs> Oh God! it was one of those things. Dude, I'm just, I'm trying to make an example here of, like, they killed something I was very excited about. If they had just tried to do something different, then cool. Or if they had just been like, all right, we're just going to start a new story. This is going to be a new thing. Uh, but you always had, you know, X-Men 2 or the way it ended with the Phoenix. And, oh, I've got this to cling to. It's the Logan thing. Man, there was a couple of Wolverine movies that really fucking sucked, <laughs> but they stuck the landing pretty well. Yeah. Obviously, this is not the end of Halloween. And there I do have issues with it, but I I can't stress enough the people involved with what came from it and the you know, I use the expression quite often, the cards they were dealt. How do you think this could have been better? I have an idea, but that's not I mean you know, this is all just after the fact, so it's a lot easier to to come up with different things that they could have done after you've watched the movie. If I hadn't seen this movie and you told me, what would you do with that with a Halloween movie in 2018? Well, for one, I would have said that you're asking the wrong person. You need to ask somebody like Alex Mattis. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is this is good. I I, I like uh, number four as well. And I think that the streamlining of the mythology is not a bad thing. I think that you could have gone sort of in the uh, reboot direction, which they kind of are. I mean, they're already rewriting history anyway, right? But would you have been opposed to them recasting Loomis instead of basically just killing him off in in the 40 years that happened between the original Halloween and this version? You know, because what if you had this, if this Halloween movie wasn't just about Laurie uh, dealing with the trauma, but also about Loomis, you know, a really fucking old Loomis, you know, dealing with it maybe in a different way. And you could contrast that or even... Yeah, I would have no issue with, like, the idea of keeping 
Loomis somehow in the fray because the fucking Sartain character is the worst part of this movie. <laughs> the idea of I I don't I don't know what I know the original opening for this movie was going to be they were going to basically rewrite the ending of the original one that Michael killed Loomis on that night in 78. Which, yeah, it was too expensive. Well, it was two things. One, John Carpenter, who was you know a producer on it, was like, no, you're not going to kill Loomis. And then two, it was going to be too expensive because... who was it? Rogue One was it? Peter Cushing. Mm-hmm. They did like the the de aging on. They were trying to find like a way they could do that with Loomis. <laughs> They're like, no, we've given y'all enough money. We're not going to do this for this movie. Just CGI so, Donald Pleasance all over. At- but yes, to your point, for all this movie tries to do to stay true to the original, coming up with this new character was dumb. So yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I agree with you. Keeping Loomis somehow part of it would have helped. Yeah, because I think that ultimately that's that's the big. Uh, sort of regret or you know the big thing that i i miss the big casualty for me when you just erase everything that happened in all the sequels is that suddenly a character that was so big you know so so central to the franchise as dr loomis now is kind of a footnote i don't know that that, that bumps me out a little it certainly bumps me out yeah. more now than it did the first time the first time I, uh, you know, I guess I hadn't really watched as many of the movies, and I hadn't really appreciated the trajectory of his character, and, and all that. I don't know that you know, even the Rob Zombie movies had a Doctor Loomis, <laughs> so it just feels a little weird that all we get from him here is just some weird like audio clips and uh, just like passing references. I don't know. Maybe that that would have been a, a a way to go. But to me, really, that's that's a very personal thing. Uh, what I like about the movie is also what ends up kind of undoing it for me because uh, and it's something that happens with horror movies a lot for me which just shows well it's not my genre so of course I am attracted to things that are not what define the genre Uh, so in this case to me much like an H2O the central idea of Laurie Strode just being fucked up by what happened in the original Halloween and having to deal with that and seeing her processing it and how it affects the people around her, to me, that's that's really cool. That's like that's the real meat of it. And uh, this movie yeah. does it so much better than than H two O. H two O. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis was great, but there was she was surrounded by you know a bunch of uninteresting characters. Uh, and she also she didn't seem. And you know we discussed that when we recorded that episode. It was I think she had the best of intentions, but the situations around that movie kind of. Uh, demotivated her performance, whereas here you can tell she's she's in it one hundred percent. Yeah, I mean it's definitely more intense, and and that's that's cool. I I, I like it. It's uh, you know in Contreras Corner, I was kind of making fun of it for being too over the top. No, I mean I, I, it's fine. I don't mind it. I I can buy it either way. I can buy a Laurie Strode that's uh, well adjusted on the surface and has like the inner turmoil underneath just waiting to break out. And I can buy this Laurie Strode that is doesn't care about even pretending that she's well-adjusted. And she's just full-on just, you know, wearing her trauma on her sleeve, uh, so to speak. So that stuff is really cool. I, but because of the nature, like the kind of movie that it is, that it is, and the kind of movie that I guess it's expected to be, you, you have, like, the detours into things that I'm not really that interested about. So... Uh, yeah, the teenagers are not bad. I mean, the, the performances are good. And considering, like, 
where we've gone in other entries in this franchise, this is all fine, but I still don't find it very interesting. Like all the stuff about the Halloween party and the, the uh, Allison's uh, romantic life. It's nowhere near as bad as Josh Harnett and his and his buddies in H2O, but it's still kind of like, uh, I have zero interest in what's going on with these kids when you have characters much more interesting like like Jamie Lee Curtis and Judy Greer uh, and uh, and the deputy that was there that night. I, I, I want to know more about those people. I want to follow those people. And every time that the story stops so they can go check on, on Allison and her friends, uh, you know, it's like this I've seen before. It's it's better acted and staged than than average, but you know the whole sequ- sequence with uh, Vicky and Dave and the kid. It's like it's it's fine, but I I want less of that and I want more of just the I guess the adult characters, but you know the ones that have really like shit going on instead of just the ones that are fodder for Michael Myers. There are scenes in this that work very very well. Your first viewing and not upon. Uh, repeats. I still think it's a fine film. Um, but yeah, I understand what you're saying too. I, I can't speak for you because obviously you didn't go into watching this the first time with as much like emotional anticipation as I did. But rewatching it, especially tonight, you know, through the lens that we do these things analytically, uh, thinking to myself exactly what you're saying. Like, holy shit, this stuff with Lori is so fucking dark. She, like, lost her kid Mm -hmm. because she, like, was obsessed with this idea and it just fucked her life up so bad that seeing really just uh, paint-by-numbers babysitters getting killed, it's like, no, 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 let's go back to the other shit here. This is a little bit more interesting. Uh, I was going to ask, though, you're talking about, you know, your interest waning when it would cut to Allison at the school dance. Would you have preferred Wendy Kaplan partying at the Tower Farm uh, in Halloween 5 with the Opie and Anthony cops there? No. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, I understand this is still above the average uh, for the franchise and for for the genre. You know, it's like, it's just one of those things where I... I've only managed to halfway come to terms with the fact that when I'm watching this kind of movie, if I'm watching a slasher movie, if I'm watching a horror movie, you know, there are some things that are just going to happen and it's it's a lot easier if I just don't resist them. You know, like yeah. we're going to have stupid characters doing stupid things so that we can have a body count. There will be I was surprised I'd forgotten that there wasn't an actual sex scene in this movie. I, I actually found it really funny that the closest we come is a uh, uh, Vicky telling Dave that she's going to dry hump him uh, or dry fuck yeah. him. It, that tickled me. I was like, oh, okay. Well, I haven't seen that before. Uh, and I'm not saying that I needed that sex scene or that I don't need it. You know, it's like either way works, but it's just one of those things that because of the way that your average slasher movie structure is like, okay, well, you're going to have dumb teenagers having sex and being unaware and then they get killed. That's, that's the kind of stuff that's like, why rage against this specific machine? Right in my place, I was like, I can keep complaining about these things happening, but really, the the logical response is like, well, what did you expect? This is Lasher, and instead, just be pleasantly surprised when they play against the tropes. Yeah. But even if I were to not complain about the the more familiar Slasher elements in this movie, I think that what really bums me out, other than uh, Loomis not being a, a major player, is that. When you get to the end, it just feels like it's all spectacle 
and not enough like all that meat that we had earlier in the story, I, ju- I just don't really see much resolution, right? It's, it just feels like... I mean, I'm not, don't get me wrong. It's satisfying to see Laurie Strode kicking his ass. Like the entire Strode family just beating him at his own game, so to speak. And, and uh, the the gotcha moment is great. And uh, the, the, the way that Laurie had set up her house is ingenious, you know? But then it's just like... I don't know. It it, it doesn't leave me uh, feeling like it fulfilled the promise of what it was setting up at the beginning. You know, like I, I kind of said it in Contrarian's Corner. I was half joking, but it was like I, I wish that there was more of a challenge to Laurie's, to our protagonist's point of view instead of the third act just being sort of a celebration of of her trauma. And, and that's cool. And you know what? In the end, I'm just like, I'm a dude that's, you know, watching it from like a, you know a dude's point of view and i think that this is probably maybe even clearly like something that can hit you a lot harder if you're a woman and you don't see enough uh, you know you have your ripley's and you have your your sarah connors mm-hmm. and whatever but to get to see laurie strode make that jump you know maybe that's while that's, dealing with all the past trauma exactly you know that has a thrill that maybe well it's just not connecting to me because I, i'm just not as connected to the character in that way but you know, in the end, like, I, I just wish there's an intellectual part of me that wanted more than just the thrill of seeing uh, Laurie Strode and her daughter and her granddaughter beating Michael. And uh, even if, you know, you were to have this ending, but you had her at some point maybe even doubt herself, you, you had if you had some character that that would have an argument with her and very clearly not being the wrong, you know, like the closest you come is maybe Judy Greer uh, being bitter about her childhood, but that doesn't necessarily uh it's like what are you saying at the end right when 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 this happens are you saying that it was worth it or are you saying that that in the process of of you know it's like oh she won she eliminated michael but what what are we left with you know it's i don't know i the ending doesn't really work for me in an intellectual way i guess and that's that that also keeps me from really really falling for this movie because i could forgive it a lot of the the missteps if it really closed you know more strongly but it just I, I just get bogged down by the little things like like Lori standing against the door making herself an easy target or that was hilarious i never thought about that before that your play-by-play that really made me fucking laugh my argument would be because there's 40 years of anticipation because she's gone through this scenario so many times i think it's fitting that the ending is so remarkably unremarkable um uh-huh. so i think there, there there could be something to that i think probably the answer is somewhere in between you and i both of our thinking uh my question is to you when we when we go into the closing sequence here and um did you enjoy the homages to the the original that specifically like her you know uh, getting thrown off the deck and then disappearing in the beanie. <laughs> yeah, I, I. I mean, maybe it it did something for you because we've been doing all this and buckshot approach. But it, I, did you enjoy any of that? Actually, that was one of the things that I even caught the first time when I watched it. I uh, I remember getting it. I was like, ah, that's like in the first one, and it, it, you know, <laughs> I thought it was cute. I, I liked it, but the the theater I saw it in erupted in cheers when that <laughs> happened so that's like a really cool memory i have of that one scene it, it wasn't like obnoxious like clapping like 
it was a theater full of sold out theaters. People, yeah, like it was, it was great. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. It, it, it's, it's one of the things that also I don't think it makes much sense, but I can, I can roll with it because it's, it's such good. I guess it's such a good reference. Uh, mm-hmm. There were, there were other things that I caught this time. Uh, just little things. Uh, hang on, because I didn't, I didn't get to bring them up when we were in Contreras Corner. Julio over here before we recorded started recording. He's like, yeah, I found 11 homages to the the previous movies. Didn't fucking catch the kids in the silver shamrock masks. <laughs> you know what I caught though? That uh that the deputy that? the deputy calls the when he's referencing the the massacre from the first movie, he calls it the babysitter murders, which you told me was the original title, one of the planned titles for Halloween. If it didn't fuck up the audio levels, I would be clapping for you right now. <laughs> I, I God bless. Uh, and then the the fact that in that same conversation, the the sheriff, the man in black, says, "Well, what are we gonna do? Cancel Halloween?" Which I thought was funny because, basically, according to Curse of Michael Myers, they cancel Halloween in Adam Field for for several years. So uh, I thought that was funny. And then on a more uh, completely not serious note, I was I couldn't find a way to work it in, but I was gonna say that when you first see the uh, Miramax logo at the beginning, at the very beginning of the movie. Before the opening credits even begin, the first thing you see is the Miramax logo, which is kind of made of stars. And I, I was going to say that it was referencing the, the constellation of Thorn, but I was trying to figure out some way to work in like the podcasters when they were driving to Lori's house were listening to Barry Sims on the radio. Oh, but <laughs> but then we don't even know if Barry Sims exists or whatnot. You you fucked my head up for like thirty seconds when you mentioned that uh, Sartain had the fucking thorn tattoo. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> that's you what, had me, man. That's what Halloween Kills is gonna be about about the thorn. That's cult. See, that's the brilliance. We've had this in the uh, fucking what are we seven months in mm-hmm. the not being right next to each other recording you and i have had the opportunity to work each other just a little bit with some things because we can't see each other's faces sometimes so it really it's worked out uh positively (laughs) so we we have uh we got to recap the franchise and we could talk about this movie a lot and i think for myself personally it's good as i jestingly said you know over and over again on social media and kind of you know the the this the soft stomach punches to people about the franchise i would say well it's the best sequel we've gotten 30 years ha 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 ha, ha. <laughs> and um there's a lot of good to this and there are some things i think the movie literally derails and if you go back to whatever movie we covered and then we did our discussion our review of this movie initially uh, back in 2018 uh, we both said the same thing in that the, the the doctor side plot, the movie fucking derails and it kind of betrays the intelligence of the movie up until that point yeah. that the doctor's so fucking dumb to just think, oh, I'll just let him roam free and he'll he'll tell me where dry land is and everything will be fine. <laughs> And then that whole scene with those dumbass cops, the as you mentioned, the Danny McBride dialogue. And then when he kills them, he turns their body into a nativity scene. <laughs> but but if you took that like 20-minute parcel out, obviously the movie would be really short. But w- when they get back to Lori's house, business picks up. And I still maintain they do a tremendous job of at no point, if you're really paying attention to it, Michael is not stalking Lori 
she's just insane and thinking this guy's after her and basically in a situation where it just presents it to where she's in the way the entire time, which I think is really interesting and also good on them for making sure they establish that much. I think um, I think it's, and I honestly, I hadn't even thought about it until you brought it up, and I, I think that's pretty brilliant. But now I'm kind of wishing that they had leaned more into it. But of course, if you lean more into it, then then you are you're exploring the Laurie Strode character in a way that I don't think they were interested in. Because you know, what are you saying if if it turns out that that yes, there was a threat, but the threat was not as personal as she thought it was, right? What does that say yeah. about her her crusade, about her obsession, and that I think that opens a door that the movie was not ready to uh, to open. It'll be fascinating if the next movie explores that. I know John Carpenter has always said he really regrets introducing the idea of them being brother and sister uh, in the second movie, but that obviously gave it an understanding as to why he was seeking her out. Uh, I, you know, whether it's good or bad is, well, it obviously I've talked about the reason I fucking love the first one so much is just cause it ha- there is no reason. Uh, but it gives some contextualization to the rest of the franchise. So the fact that they did away with it here, but made a point to never make it seem like he was going after her. I mean, the, the main compliment in, you know, comparing this to the original is that especially having watched both of these in really close time frames, uh, in between <laughs> some questionable to downright bad sequels, you can tell in this one that John Carpenter was overseeing everything uh, in a vision that he saw, and that Jamie Lee Curtis was fully committed to it. And what we got, yeah, there's some stuff in it that, like, well, maybe you know, retool that, but it's it it came the closest to capturing the feel of the original of any of the other 10 sequels, which obviously nothing's really uh, immortal words of Eddie Guerrero. Nothing's better than the original Holmes, but it's, it's pretty damn close. And before we go into what I want to consider the main event of this, uh, obviously if you have anything to add on to that, go for it. But I was about to say, the score in this is phenomenal, and John Carpenter coming back to create that. I've, God, the music in this gets me so fucking pumped. It's ridiculous. And especially like the Halloween theme, mm-hmm. you would think there's not that many ways to tinker with it, but when it just hits you in the beginning, the like it goes right into it, and there's no build. It's, mm, well, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty sharp cut because it's from the from the podcaster screaming right and then say something yeah, yeah. and then just cuts on the music yeah no it's really it's really awesome the the, the score is really really effective and, and really overall yeah something that i mean you kind of brought it up earlier i don't think it's just the that the cast is so uniformly talented it's just that the uh the movie feels modern modern makes it sound like a, a, a more it makes it sound superficial it's you know, like the craft, it's it's very sometimes watching the sequel, uh, yeah, watching the sequels. It felt like, well, we're making the movie, but we're only taking it this seriously, you know. And this one feels like they took it a hundred percent seriously, the way that the original was being taken seriously. Uh, yes, you know, if 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 that makes any sense, yeah. With all its missteps, I still always felt like, okay, well, this is this is serious business. And uh, and that's oh man, that's something that I appreciated. 
literal like literal chills like I, i'm nearly having goosebumps here just because you're finding a way to verbalize a thought that i've had about this that i couldn't figure out how to do so so the other halloween sequels the movies we've covered and uh, we'll exclude rob zombie because you know he thinks he's right so <laughs> it's uh, the sequels we've covered the halloween sequels and the you know the slasher movies that we have done on here and you know especially the Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequels come to mind as those in this vein of we're just going to make a good Halloween movie. We're just going to make a good Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. This was we're going to make a good movie. And it was we're going to incorporate actual A-list stars into it and use real like a real budget and make a real fucking movie out of it. And that's what you said is exactly right. This feels so much more real deal than any other like horror movie in a long fucking time. I, I think that we've we found the perfect point of intersection between my take on the Halloween franchise and your take in the Halloween franchise. <laughs> God bless. We both it only agree. took six episodes. We both agree that Halloween 2018 is the real deal or takes itself seriously. Coming to a close here, uh, as far as this goes, like I said, I, I, the main event, as I, I keep teasing, and I mentioned earlier, I want to put it off, comes perfectly off of what you said about the real deal and something taking itself seriously. Judy Greer in this movie is a, a fucking revelation. And, you know, we always joke about Oscar clips and, you know, oh, should have been nominated for this and that. I really cannot be complimentary enough of her in this movie because she is a good actress. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've obviously with Elizabethtown, there's its fair share of uh, jesting we've done on this podcast. Um, What's that movie with uh, Jason Siegel? I really like Jeff, who works at home. Jeff, who lives at home. Mm-hmm. That's uh, she's in that. That I always think of her in that because she's so fucking great in it. And you know the countless other uh, projects I've seen her in. This is like I would almost consider the best I've seen her, and that's not. I it, it should just be complimentary of how good she is in this, and you know, Julio might be uh, breaking ground here. And, you know, the 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 reveal last year with Kinsey about Almost Famous being upgraded to my favorite, uh, one of my top five favorite movies. My favorite scene in the entire Halloween franchise is Judy Greer in the basement while Michael's ripping up the, um, the island, the kitchen island. Uh-huh. And she's, it's something you can't teach. Like all these movies we've watched and, you know, the actors and performances we've dealt with, it's just been thinking of like, well, and like in my mind, for example, like, you know, Julio could do that same thing. You know, it's just, it's someone that's there <laughs> and just kind of fills common denominator. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just making an example or, you know, uh, I, I know people that could do this as good, if not better. I don't know someone that could do what Judy Greer did in the fucking 30 seconds the scene evolves in her whole range from scared to like bewilderment of oh my god this whole thing that my mom told me is actually real Mm -hmm. to oh my god my daughter's here i have to protect her and then her calling out to her mom and i can't do it help us please and then when she sees michael and then just all comes together in that one moment gotcha shoots and boom Mm -hmm. 
I don't know of like something I've had a reaction to like that in a horror movie ever. I was just like, oh my god, this is the this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and you know, this is uh, fuck. What's the George Clooney movie you and I screened together that she was in? Was that The Descendants? Is she his wife? No, no, the wife is in a coma. But I mean, yeah, The Descendants we screened together, and that has George Clooney in it. I don't remember who she plays. I remember her in that and um, she's in love and other drugs and you know, she's, she's been in movies with very substantially uh, famous people and had some very good performances. And I think it just speaks to what you were saying of the seriousness that this movie was taken with. And man, I, I don't know. I might've completely just hijacked this segment, but I think she's the highlight of the movie by a country <laughs> mile. I, oh, I agree. I don't know that, that she is the highlight. I, I think, well, she's a revelation because, see, to me, the highlight is seeing Jamie Lee Curtis playing Laurie this way, right? The, the, a way completely different than what we've seen before, maybe even different than Fair. what we expected. But I think that seeing Jamie Lee Curtis pull that off is not as surprising or as unusual as seeing, at least to me, seeing Judy Greer play this type of character. Because, yeah, I usually associate her w- with with lighter roles. She's usually romantic comedies or, you know, where she's the funny supporting character in a drama. Uh, and so here she gets to be something completely different. Uh, she has a couple of funny moments, but for the most part, she's just playing a character that's straight and she's doing it really well. And then she gets, I agree, maybe the best moment in the movie. So, uh, no, I, I'm, I'm 100% behind that. It's uh, She's definitely... Uh, Maybe if not the highlight, one of the highlights, and uh, I I love it. I love the fact that she doesn't die, which means that she'll be in the next one. Hopefully, she died on the way back to her home planet. They had to kill her off, and <laughs> she'll they'll have um someone drastically older than her in a five year span get impaled on a wheat thrasher in the opening act of the movie. <laughs> I think you know the big revelation it, is going to be that Allison stabbed both Lori and. Uh, Judy Greer in the back of that truck. You, you've seen the teaser for Halloween Kills, right? No, I didn't know there was one. Oh, yeah. It came out last summer uh, or this summer. I don't know. what What is time anymore? <laughs> it plays off of uh, your thing with Halloween 2. It, it literally is them in the back of the truck driving away from the flaming house and the coming towards the house is cop cars and fire trucks and they're like no don't go they're trying to <laughs> you know wave them off it, it's fucking 20 seconds long but it's you know boom halloween kills and then this big sticker goes over that says covid and then it gets <laughs> delayed for a year the sticker goes over halloween so it just says covid kills <laughs> Metallica said, but true. The way we structured this with following the chronology of it all, and I think that's a way to end it, but also just from where this franchise has come, where it's gone, and where it has ended up as of most recently, I think for the kind things we've been able to say about it, it's a it's a perfect ending point. I We've talked about this so long that I'm not even going to shoehorn in all my trivia. Other than, other than Julio, who do you think it was that convinced Jamie Lee Curtis to do this movie? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Well, Arnold is a good dude, but <laughs> it was not. It was, in fact, her godson, Jake Gyllenhaal. Aww. I thought that was just one of the... Because sometimes on IMDb you read things that are like, mm, but uh, the Taking Shape book was it confirmed that 
David Gordon Green or someone had because Jamie Lee Curtis was like, fuck off. I don't want to do it. And <laughs> someone told Jake Gyllenhaal, like, hey, we know you're close with her. Why don't you just why don't you just see if she'll meet with us? <laughs> and it was one of those things if she just thought it was going to be like H2O, like another cash grab. And then she actually read the script and she was like, oh, yes, I will absolutely do this. And uh, John Carpenter had some great quote in that book about like, I finally realized I had been bitching about the Halloween franchise for so long without actually doing anything <laughs> that I thought I should actually probably do something. <laughs> All right. For myself, for the 2018 Halloween, I'll give it a B. I think there's, for the things we've discussed, the Doctor subplot does literally derail a lot of that movie for me. But my God, there is so much good in it. So I'm going to, I'm going to go, we'll just, we'll say a B plus. How about that? But just for Judy Greer, we get that plus added on. I checked my letterbox score from when I watched it the first time and I gave it three stars and my little blurb was pretty much like a summary of what we've been talking about. Maybe less kind. So I'm definitely bumping it up to 3.5. I kind of, I wish I could give it a four. I can't bring myself to it. And I'm thinking, I'm wondering if the best way to watch this movie is as a double feature where you watch the original Halloween and then you watch this one and the contrast between yeah. young Jamie Lee Curtis and present day Jamie Lee Curtis and you know the innocence and the jadedness of it if that would help me make that final jump to where I am all in at the end uh, instead of just being all in on Judy Greer's moment <laughs> that's a possibility but for the time being let's just let's celebrate that it bumped got bumped half a star on my on my rating from 3 to 3.5 with the potential Amen. to uh, to make it to four if I just keep putting myself through this. <laughs> I can dig it. And again, did not take it easy on you. There was a, a long and winding road between the original and this one to get here. <laughs> Took you way off course with Halloween 3. And then uh, we had Halloween 6 and brought you to Halloween H2O. Uh, the one other thing, the homage to the original, I did want to bring up that I, I lied. There was another b- piece of trivia. The scene where Allison is in class, the teacher that you never see, you just hear her voice, that was uh, Riff Randall, PJ Souls, Linda from the original one. Uh, I, I think it... If I understood correctly, they wanted to try to bring like her to have an actual on-screen role, but then they were like, this just wouldn't make sense. Uh, I thought you were going to say that that scene references both uh, the original Halloween because uh, you know, Allison looks out the window as she sees... Jamie Lee Curtis, the way that Jamie Lee Curtis saw Michael. But more importantly, it references H2O because you have that scene where uh, uh, Michelle Michelle Williams Williams. (laughs) is there. and Well, in in that scene, Michelle Williams is the one that expresses the theme of the movie. And here it's just the teacher, the one that's saying it while Allison is looking out. But still, I I got the H2O vibes. So that's got to count. I I don't think more importantly an H2O should ever really be mentioned in... uh, (laughs) any type of film discussion (laughs) all right so that is it for Haddonfield Nights we have wrapped it up here and is like kind of a retrospective or a a conclusion so to speak Uh, I told Julio we'd go over a few uh, quick awards we're not going to do a whole Winoni's ceremony out out of this but just a few quick uh, acknowledgments so starting with uh, favorite Michael and I think obviously this will not be too surprising for me. I, I'm curious if Julio, you've you've developed a, a Michael along the way that I was unaware of. But obviously Nick Castle from the original and parts of the 2018 version, just the the walking, the mannerisms, and 
Uh, I think it's kind of it's probably unfair to credit that specifically to Nick Castle because the story from the original has always been like uh, maybe when he wasn't on set, John Carpenter or Deborah Hill or just someone had to get in the suit to kind of stand there and just you know take the shots and whatnot. But uh, the original Michael for me is is the best um, mask and all. Julio, do you have anything different? Can't can't do Did it. Did you like man. Tyler Maine a lot? No. Well, see, original Michael would never make the cut because he drives too much. It's original <laughs> original Halloween Michael is the worst when it comes to driving, and we've established how I feel about Michael Myers driving. Uh, no, I went with uh, with old Michael with with twenty eighteen Michael, the Michael that has age. Okay. I like the fact that we get glimpses of his face. And and you can tell he's an old man. That's really <laughs> to me. That's that's that shows just how different we are, Alex. Because you obsess about the masks, and to me, like the coolest thing is when Michael's not wearing a mask. <laughs> You're like, Holy shit! Look, he's got gray hair. Yeah, he's got a beard. Yeah, he's got a beard that you know you can see. Like he's an old man, and that makes him to me that makes him creepier. Just the fact that he aged, <laughs> and uh, but he's still he's he's horrible. Uh, he's still a killer, you know. That's I didn't want to separate from like the actors because yeah, I remember hearing that in in this one, 2018, it's Nick Castle and uh, uh, what's the name of the other guy? But it's basically two people playing him at least, right? Yeah, it's uh, James Jude Courtney. Yeah, there you go, JJC. <laughs> uh, <laughs> secondly, and this at this point, since we have covered all but two Halloweens on the Contrarians. Uh, this isn't just confined to the Haddonfield Nights series we've done, but the, our top three Halloween movies. And uh, for myself, I think I pretty much already spelled this out, but we'll uh, count down from three being 2018, uh, two being The Return of Michael Myers, part four from 1988, and then, of course, the original uh, being my favorite Halloween. Julio, if... Uh, you had to pick three. What would they be? Uh, here's where it's gonna get ugly, Alex. Uh oh. <laughs> this is what you need to understand. If you haven't over the last six episodes or five episodes in this one, and that is that what I what I want from the Halloween franchise is very different from what you want and from what most Halloween fans <laughs> want. So, okay. So to me, number three is Halloween Four: The Return of Michael Myers. Uh, nice. I, I I remember enjoying it. It's it, I mentioned it. I think a couple episodes ago. You know what I find the most fascinating is that it's a movie that acknowledges its place in the franchise. It's people that have dealt with Michael Myers before, and they don't waste time kind of like relearning that he's a threat. They just they go into into you know the green light everything. Let's 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 take care of business. And then it becomes a slasher movie, and I lose interest. To jump in, when you were explaining that on one of our last episodes, it took me a second to understand what you were meaning, and but then that really stuck with me. For all the things I love about that movie, it's like you're right. It's it's not like the the other ones are kept like H two O. Oh, you're crazy, or you know, mm-hmm. every Nightmare on Elm Street or every Friday the Thirteenth of like there is no Jason in that movie. It's just like fucking hell. <laughs> Get all your guns. Get the National Guard. We're going hunting. Exactly. So I I love that, and I uh, so that that to me makes it very memorable among all the other uh, entries in the franchise. Uh, number two, brace yourself, Alex, because I actually have Halloween H two O as my number two. Oh my god! 
Allow me to explain. Please do. <laughs> Listen, I agree with every every criticism you you threw at it. I agree with it in the episode that we recorded. You know, uh, it's uh, all the stuff with the with the young ones. It's just it's a waste of time. I don't care about Josh Harnett. I don't care about Michelle Williams. I don't care about the other two. Uh, but I care a lot about Jamie Lee Curtis, and I think that that's what. I gave this movie two stars. When I think back, like I was sitting back and I was trying to like rank them in my head and be like, okay, which one am I more likely to watch again? And which one would I have like fonder memories of? And the thing is, it's a short movie. The stuff that I don't like kind of like moves really fast anyway. And the stuff I do like, it's, it's good. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis is performing the hell out of what they give her. It, it, she's playing, you know, similar notes to what she does in 2018, but also different enough like, like we're saying, you know, she's she's keeping her pain a little closer in, like tighter in, not not letting people see it. And uh, it has the promise of a very interesting movie. Uh, and I, for all the missteps and all the bullshit in between that and the and the end, you know, it's funny because I think that the that ending, that that final confrontation between her and and Michael feels a little more I find it a little more cathartic than the the confrontation that she has in, in 2018 maybe maybe because maybe because it's just like one on one you know or or maybe because I think that the mo- just how fucking crazy she goes at the end where she like takes the gun from the cop and steals the ambulance and just goes over kill trying to kill him you know what you know that's what i wanted from from her in this movie in 2018 i wanted her to be that like you've established that she's already that deranged and i you know she needed to go and chop michael's head off you know as he was burning so uh you know there had to be a controversial opinion and i'm jumping on that grenade that's what i'm saying h2o is my number two. Sorry, Alex. If there was some way to incorporate like the first half of Rob Zombies <laughs> with the second half of H two O, I think that would that would just be like a wet dream for Julio. <laughs> he would be like, "This is the perfect Halloween." <laughs> Look, I haven't Rob Zombies is not my first, so uh, my number one. So no. It's not okay. That that has me very interested. Then, uh, yeah, no, my number one is Halloween twenty eighteen for all the the things that we discussed in this episode i i you know it's it basically it does what h2o was trying to do it does it much better it still doesn't quite you know pull it off the way i would want to but in the end it's it's a much better execution of that idea oh laurie strode is traumatized she's you know ruining her life ruining the life of the people around her uh you know, and it takes it more seriously. It doesn't have fucking Josh Harnett running around being a brat. It's it's just it's so much better. So it as it stands right now, if anybody asks me, I would say that one's my favorite Halloween movie, and that's probably the one that I'm more likely to to rewatch. So there it is, my number one. So along this path, uh, my sister has watched pretty much all of them with me. Former guest of our podcast, Lillian. And she is saying now three is her favorite Halloween. Wow. And it makes me just angry. I'm like, no, you can't say that. You can say you like Season of the Witch, but you can't say it's your favorite Halloween movie because Michael Myers isn't in it. It, it. like It's one of those things like I feel like uh, the fucking Anders character from Workaholics. I'm like, this isn't fair. You're not being fair. <laughs> and it's – yeah, but she, she fell in love with that movie, which uh, – 
I guess, speaking of three, that segues into the third and final discussion or category uh, that we'll have here. And this is just moments from Haddonfield Nights. So obviously different than the uh, the movies. These are obviously exclusive to the Haddonfield Nights six-part series and um, scenes, moments, what have you in the movies that we've covered so far. Uh, so, Julio, do you have any? I only have one honorable mention. Do you have any honorable mentions? I do. I do. Uh, my one honorable mention is... Uh, Dr. Loomis freaking out at the end of uh, Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. <laughs> uh, very fair. It's as we joked about on there. It's it's just I it feels like that clip is not it wasn't put in the movie like it was supposed to be just because <laughs> of the delay he has where he looks around and oh now. Ah! <laughs> So for myself, my honorable mention is there There was no way I couldn't at least bring this up. The fucking Joe Grizzly. I mean, just <laughs> the moment, the man, the scene. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to call it therapeutic, but our discussion of that Rob Zombie Halloween brought me a lot of, I think closure is a bit of a dramatic word, but it, it brought uh, meaning to a lot of my feelings on that movie that I've never really been able to explain because the people... Uh, my closest friends that are big fans of the Halloween franchise are Chris and Reed, and they both really do not care for that movie at all. So <laughs> it's never been like a thing where I've been able to discuss positively and negatively and have like a back and forth about it. So that really did a lot for me to help me kind of understand how I really think about it and where I place it in the Halloween zeitgeist. That all being said, that Joe Grizzly scene is fucking awesome, and that's right <laughs> up there with any of my Halloween scenes. So uh, I'll go ahead and just count mine down from Haddonfield Nights. Uh, I already mentioned it. Uh, my favorite scene ever in a Halloween movie is uh, Judy Greer when she shoots Michael and her reaction to everything that's going on. And just watching it again tonight, I it was one of those, you know it's a good moment on our podcast where you put your pen down and just kind of watch the screen and smile, <laughs> put your phone to the side and just kind of watch it all unfold. Uh, second never really gets old. And that being the, the end of Halloween three, it's on the third channel, the third channel. Oh my God, you got to stop it. You got to stop it for the love of God. There's no more time. And my top moment, just cause, cause I remember just kind of relaying it to you and recounting it. And you were just like, okay, was, uh, the end of the original Halloween where I'm just like gushing about Loomis unloading the gun and continuing to fire. And uh, the only time you really came in was when you agreed that Jamie Lee breaking down was good. And I was just like, and Loomis is just standing there and he goes and checks the body and the body's gone. And he looks around cause he knows the evil's left. And you were just like, yeah, that happened. It was a thing that we saw. And then of course it, it's my final opportunity to, Set the record straight once and for all. She does not ask, was that the boogeyman? <laughs> she affirms, it was the boogeyman. And Donald Pleasant says, as a matter of fact, it was. So Julio, <laughs> what were your top three moments of Haddonfield Nights? I'm glad you got to get that out of your chest one last time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm glad, well, I knew that there was one that would never be on your list. And so I'm glad that we only have two crossovers because <laughs> my number three is Tom Atkins freaking out at the end of Season of the Witch. Of course. 
Hell yeah. Just him, his screaming. That is just Tom Atkins for president. God damn it. He's just great. <laughs> uh, my number two, this is our big, uh, this is where we differ, I'm sure. But to me, it's uh, Jamie Lee Curtis decapitating Michael at the end of H2O. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I just. You're doubling down on the H2O. Man. I know, I know. But it's just, to me, that was just so satisfying. And I love that. It's not just that she decapitates him, but also that the movie ends. So we are left to just kind of imagine what the hell happened right after. How does she explain what happened after this? (laughs) (laughs) The cops show up. She she stole she stole a gun. She stole an ambulance, and then she she just super murdered uh, her. What is he? Her brother in this one? I don't remember. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, Can't yeah. keep track. But anyway, the decapitation. I just like it. I know you were not. You even in the episode, you said, yeah, yeah, decapitations are no longer in vogue. Uh, too old school. I will give you credit, though. Like I called out in the episode, the the movie ending with her heavily breathing, mm-hmm. that that was really cool. That was a, that was amongst the cooler things in that movie that weren't LL Cool J. <laughs> uh, and finally... Uh, it's 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 your favorite moment in the Halloween franchise. It, it's my number one, which is uh, Judy Greer's Gotcha. Which, that, that was just yeah. just fist pumping. It's just so well set up. Definitely didn't see it coming the first time that I watched the movie. In the like I mentioned, Contreras Corner in the big picture of things, I don't know that I I'm a hundred percent behind Lori's master plan. But that moment mm. is just really cool, and it works. And I just I choose to watch it in isolation, not as part of the big massive plan, uh, yep. but just as in like yep. Judy Greer kind of like seizing the moment and figuring out how she's gonna manipulate this guy into coming out of hiding so she can shoot him. Uh, so that's that's pretty cool, and she's great. Absolutely, and yeah, there's many ways to read it, but it absolutely fantastic. Final conclusion before we get to our perennial plugs here on the Contrarians. Uh, I do need to plug one last time the book Taking Shape by Dustin McNeil and Travis Mullins, which provided me uh, just fascinating insight throughout this whole journey we've done. And so many things that weren't even brought up in these episodes, Mm -hmm. just really interesting uh, and very, very um, almost scholarly uh, coverage of the Halloween franchise and what it was, where it came from, what it became, all the behind the scenes shit. If you are a Halloween connoisseur, cannot recommend it enough, uh, as well as Halloween 25 Years of Terror, which was a documentary released um, well over 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago at this point. I actually ended up watching it again last night <laughs> just to kind of recap to make sure there was nothing big I missed to discuss. It's it's like 80 minutes. It's really not. It's an independently made documentary from back in the mid-2000s. Uh, my favorite takeaway from it was when they are doing the section of Halloween three, there's a talking head of Tom Atkins trying to explain the plot of the movie and he can't stop laughing. He, <laughs> he love it. And uh, at the end they're doing like the, why is Halloween endured after 25 years? Or why do people still care? And Tom Atkins just says something to the effect of, I don't fucking know. <laughs> He's fantastic. I did my searching. Cause you know, I like to read, passages and entries and really prophetic things to kind of put a bow or a cap or a pin, uh, an ending, a period 
on something. And for this, it's uh, it's just me thanking you for allowing us to do this. These are my movies. <laughs> this is my franchise. You know, a lot of people, uh, and, and it's you know Star Wars, and you know you kind of have the Marvel movies, and it's um, this has been like my entire life. I have uh, a, a tie to the Halloween franchise. It's you know, as a little kid, me and my sister watching Halloween 2 in our living room in Waterville, Ohio. And the window in our living room was like at, um, it was probably like six feet off the ground. So it was right at like my dad's head level. And I remember me and her sitting in front of the TV watching it and him working in the yard and coming up to the window and saying, hey, what are you guys doing? And us just, ah, like screaming because <laughs> we were so focused on the movie that it scared the shit out of us. And, you know, I've mentioned uh, high school dates, college dates, uh, the Halloween, the 2018 one, seeing that with Reed and Chris at the theater and uh, the Rob Zombie one, my experience is going to see that in the theater. And, you know, four and five as a kid, well up through high school and college watching those and, uh I have all these memories. Like I have this weird memory of back when I wasn't such a fucking fat ass at the gym, just like running on the treadmill, watching the original one on Halloween morning. And I have such a connection to these movies that in some aspects is probably unhealthy. I'm not going to lie about (laughs) that, but I'm very happy that you allowed us to do this. And I thought it was a lot of fun. So anyone that listened to these for the first time or kept up with us the whole way through, I'm, positive having edited these that my passion for these movies shined through so uh, that was a lot of fun and to close i will just say a happy halloween (laughs) to you all and julio uh, i think we'll go ahead and take this on home by uh, first giving thanks to the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks they always will kick us off with last stand and take us home with summer of 99 head on over to the festiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Uh, if you like our logo, uh, both our seasonal uh, Haddonfield Nights logo, which I guess this is the last time you're going to see it, uh, because starting next episode, we'll just go back to uh, our original. But uh, our friend, Hans Roth Peter, he, he did both of those. Uh, and he also has done some other work for us that uh, will be revealed soon. But uh, he is an artist, obviously. He's also a podcaster. He has a bunch of podcasts. It feels like every few months I talk to him and he's doing a new podcast. Not to replace one of his other ones, it's just in addition to. And he has a full family. He has like a <laughs> wife and kids. I don't know where he has the time, but he has four podcasts right now. He sleeps 90 minutes a night. Yes. I, I think one of his podcasts is just what he says while he's sleeping. Uh, <laughs> he has a... Most of his podcasts are in Spanish. He has Nación Combi, which is about uh, Peruvian current affairs. He has Marginal, which is about economy. I guess kind of like on a high level. And he just started another one that's called uh, Contante y Sonante, which is more like uh, economy, like on a more accessible level. You can find them in any podcatcher. The links are in our show notes. He has a podcast in English called Living in Peru. That's about uh, immigrants to Peru. He is also a writer. So he has a bunch of zombie novels uh, that you can check out on his website website is mildemonios.pe that's m-i-l-d-e-m-o-n-i-o-s you can also reach to him uh, on twitter at mildemonios or email him mildemonios at hotmail.com he is a very very busy guy but he also likes to talk a lot not just it's obvious because of his <laughs> podcast but also because he has opinions 
I, I love that I get to bring this up, Alex, because he listened to some episode. I think it was our episode of The Dilemma from a couple months ago. And I guess I referenced the fact that he liked Crazy Stupid Love. And uh, yes, he messaged me. He did. And I remember like, Ugh. Yeah, he messaged me. And he's like, where do you get this that I like Crazy Stupid Love? I'm like, because you told me. Because we had a, a discussion. <laughs> and I was talking about how bad the movie was. And you were defending it. And he was quiet for a moment. And he's like, well... What year was that movie from? Because, no, that's not a good movie. So it seems like Hans, over the years, has seen the light when it comes to Crazy Stupid Love, and that makes me happy. Good man. Uh, Maybe he'll see the light about the original Fly eventually. There's hope. And we want to give a shout-out to Zoe Perez for helping uh, basically manage our social media at this point, making a bunch of pretty Instagram posts for all of our followers, uh, helping to spruce up our Facebook account as well. Zoe, we appreciate the work you do for us. All right, so that concludes Haddonfield Nights. We appreciate y'all being along this journey with us. Uh, If you have any thoughts on Halloween or any uh, critiques or just want to tell us we're wrong for whatever reason, uh, I mean, Julio already said H2O was good, so we're we're pretty deep in the hole as it is. (laughs) But uh, don't, don't hesitate to reach out with any feedback. Thank you guys so much for supporting this and listening along. And that will conclude this for The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. The summer of 1999.